Hi, everyone, and thank you all for being here today. At this time, I welcome our Master of Ceremonies. Her name is Lakeisha James. She's a corporate event planner, set designer, mentor, author, and Atlanta chapter leader for World Woman Conference and Awards. Welcome, Lakeisha James. Thank you, Gigi. Welcome, everybody. So I'd like to welcome everybody to the Global Virtual Panel of Recovering Drug Addicts. I am Lakeisha James, your Master of Ceremonies for the evening. Tonight, we will hear stories of drug addiction survivors. We will hear how they overcame and what they are doing now to use their voice to help someone in the world that is experiencing drug addiction or has experienced it. On behalf of Regaline Gigi Sabat and Life Service Center of America, I want to welcome you. And remember, this is a safe place and we are here to support you. I would like to introduce you to the woman behind the vision, a woman who does not mind bringing individuals together who has experienced life and not afraid to talk about it. Rachelene Sabat is a first-generation Haitian-American motivational speaker, five-time best-selling author of The Walk With Me and God First books that have been endorsed by Les Brown. Gigi is also a co-author for several best-selling book collaborations and is the life coach and confidence coach. She is an experienced leader who has adopted a traditional approach to help people grow spiritually, financially, professionally, and personally. She does this by setting clear and measurable goals for those that are ready to take action and experience life growth and transformation. Gretchen truly believes multi-skilled individuals make great leaders. It's not about focusing on many things at once, but it's about utilizing all skills for the greater good and overall fulfilling God's purpose for our people, our lives, and serve his people. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Reginald and Gigi Sabat. Thank you. All right. So you guys ready? Ready? So we're going to go with our first speaker, our keynote speaker, Misty Lane. Misty Lane will inspire you with her courage to transparently share her journey with Deem, her empowerment and resiliency expert. She went from studying to be a surgeon to facing 40 years in prison for killing somebody behind a horrific cocaine addiction. Misty felt hopeless while drowning in her rock bottom, continuously punishing herself with toxic guilt and shame. She found the strength to pull herself up and claims writing with the therapy that saved her life. Her story will inspire you to overcome your worst to live your best life, knowing we all come out as survivors. Ladies and gentlemen, please, please welcome our keynote speaker, Misty Lane. Hello, well, thank you so much for having me and thank you, Gigi, for such a fabulous summit, bringing awareness and education out to the world is much needed thing. Um, I'm here today to talk to you about hope, inspiration, um, to let you all know that we can all overcome our worst to live our best, um, I know it because I've done it myself, and um, that's my goal, is just to set out and educate the world with transparency. Right now, we are facing such a huge opioid epidemic. It has come to the point where, you know, we're all in some kind of pain, whether it be a physical pain or a mental pain. We all look for something to help ease that pain and that suffering. And a lot of our youth, a lot of our, our worldwide, not just in America, but worldwide have turned to prescription drugs, have turned to these opioids, and it's become such an epidemic out there. And I feel we all have culpability here. We all have a responsibility to educate, to make awareness, bring awareness and shed light on it so that we can learn how to better um, get out there and decrease this 
you know, it's, it's about these prescription drugs, healthcare, $78 billion alone goes out per year, it, whether it be in the court system, whether it be in rehabbing a community or um, therapies or whatever it is, we're spending a ton of money to try to help um, this epidemic. So I'm here today to talk to you about not just specifically the opioid, but for my case, it was a crack cocaine addiction. So I wanna just talk to you in, uh, basically about uh, addiction in general. Um, you know, my life started out, I was on top of the world. As you heard in the intro, I was in medical school studying to be a surgeon. I thought I had it all figured out. Um, and at age 32 years old, I didn't respect the moment of choice that I had. And I chose to do a line of cocaine. And that turned into a very long, torturous 10-year addiction. So I want you to understand that addiction, it is it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter who we are, where we come from, what kind of car we drive, if we're educated or not, what color we are, what religion we are, what community we live in, none of that matters. If you open the door to addiction, it will take you hostage and it won't give up until it does. It held me hostage for 10 long years. I lost so many things behind it. But like I said, there is there's hope, there's, there's good news that we can overcome this. Sometimes we feel like we are completely helpless and hopeless to the drug. I know I did. I know it started out really slow. Um, I was able to manage it. I was able to, to understand that, you know, I could, I could do a few lines and then go a whole week and wait till the next weekend to do it again. But with any addiction, whether it be an illicit drug, a gambling, a sex, whatever the addiction is, with any addiction, it is progressive. It is a progressive disease. So what ends up happening is over time, it takes more and more to, to create that same level. It's all about the dopamine in your, in your brain and, and the serotonin levels of, that gives you happiness and pleasure. And these drugs give us such a high that we're constantly searching for that high. And then when we crash down and we come off of the drug, we're actually at a below level normal. So our bodies are craving and constantly trying to just get back up to normal and feel good because that's the response we had gotten. So it's um, with crack cocaine, I wanna go into that just a little bit specifically, it is just um, such a physical addiction that you, you get so used to having to take that hit, take that hit constantly, that it just becomes a habit over time and your body's craving it so desperately. That's what happened to me. My addiction went slowly over about um, the first few months. I got introduced to crack cocaine. I started doing crack cocaine and instantly, it took me down instantly. I'm talking about I was in medical school studying to be a surgeon. I was on top of the world. The next thing I know, I am uh, missing, you know, uh, calling in all the time. I found myself sleeping on the floor in the bathroom uh, of the hospital just because I had been up for days at a time. I mean, you guys, I, I'm going to speak to you raw and real today because that's what it takes. That's what it takes to get the education and get the awareness out there. Um, if we don't, find what works. And there is no magic key. For each of us, it's something different. But if we don't find what works, I can tell you what comes next. And that's what I'm going to share with you in my life, what came next. 
my addiction progressed and it progressed and it progressed until it robbed me of my friends, my family, my job, my career, everything. I was stripped down to nothing. I was allowing things to happen in my life that I had never allowed before. I found myself in a domestic abuse relationship, not knowing what kind of food I liked, not knowing what kind of music I liked because I allowed a man to control every part of me because he supplied me with the drug. And he was such a master manipulator. They can use those drugs against us and that addiction is so real and so deep that until we learn that we, have, we can fight back and heal from it, we're just, we left hopeless and helpless, which is where I was in this stage in my life. I never intended on September 18th, 2007 to kill someone, but I did. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong things with the wrong people. And I was attacked and robbed, lost control of my vehicle, and in turn, hit a, a lady standing in her yard and knocked underneath her house and I killed her. And when I woke up in jail facing a 40 year prison sentence, it was as if all the breath was out of me. I had no idea where I was headed. I had no idea. I was in such oblivion. All I knew is that I had been powerless for so long and helpless for so long. I just, I didn't even know what to do next. Um, I can tell you that I knew I wanted to live. I've never been suicidal. So I dug down real deep inside of myself and I, I turned to myself and I said, okay, either you're gonna pull yourself up out of this or you're gonna die too. And then your kids are gonna be the father and mother. And you know, everything else from, from there on had to be about the journey of healing, had to be about learning what that void was inside that I was so desperately using crack to fill. Because that's all it really is, is it some kind of a space that's left void and null that we're, or some kind of pain that's deep inside that we're constantly trying to just bury with little Debbie cakes, bury with cocaine, bury with sex, gambling, whatever the addiction is. So I found myself in this place where I knew I had to do some work. I had to find out what's causing this. What am I doing? So that's when my, my journey of writing began. I started just writing out my story, never intending really to have a book, just started using writing as therapy. I tell people that's what saved my life and it truly did. Seven months later, sitting in a jail cell awaiting a 40 year sentence to prison, I finished my book, What Goes Up? And that was such a self-discovery journey that anyone out there struggling with addiction today, no matter where you are in that process, if you're just beginning with your addiction, if you're years deep in it like I was, or even if you're recovered from it and you're still in recovery, you use writing as therapy to save your life. Not only does it save your life, it allows education for others to understand. I believe in this world, transparency is necessary. I believe that we need to speak. We need to step up and speak out raw and authentically so that we can educate and, and teach people. You know, I used to think I was a monster behind some of the horrible things I did behind crack cocaine because the drug made me, it took me. Whatever needed to happen next for me to get another hit, I did. I found myself out there doing all those things that I swore I would never do. Not me. It's not going to happen to Misty. I'm on top of the world. No way. Next thing I know, I'm prostituting. 
Next thing I know, I'm three abortions in, three, behind crack cocaine. And I never allowed myself the space and time to grieve. I never forgave myself. And that was the biggest part of the journey, you guys, is learning to forgive yourself. So I want you to know, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you feel that you, you're in and you can't come out of it, I want you to know that you can. I want you to know that there's hope on the other side of addiction. I went to rehab, I was told only 3% of us would ever come out on the other side of addiction. And I'm standing here today in front of you as a three percenter. And I know you can be too. I want you to use writing as therapy. I want you to learn how to be transparent, forgive yourself, step up, speak out, bring awareness so that we can judge less and mentor more in the world. Get involved in your community, get involved in the addiction centers, get involved in what this opioid epidemic, epidemic is about and do your part. Help do your part to help create a safer place for our youth to grow and evolve. I'm so privileged and happy to be here with you today and share my story. And I just pray that you can step up and speak out. Thank you, Thank you. Misty. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Missy. I love that transparency is necessary and it definitely is. Thank you so much for sharing your Thank story. You. Thank you for having me. Our next speaker is Dr. Sandra Rosaldi. Did I pronounce that correctly? Forgive me if I did not. Rosaldi. Rosaldi. Thank you. <laughs> She's an author, number one patient nurse relationship and communication, keynote speaker and forensic nurse educator. And Sandra, before you begin, could you tell me what those letters mean behind your name? BNP, S-M-S-N-E-D. Of course, I know what RN means, but then P-M-H-N-P means for everyone that's watching. I just graduated. So now I am a doctorally prepared masterly prepared in nursing education, ARNP, which is advanced practice registered nurse, psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner board certified. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us. So go ahead and proceed with your story. I cannot wait to hear your story. Well, thank you so much, so very much for having me to come on to speak about this, Miss um, Sabat and Life Centers of America. This is absolutely a privilege, and thank you so much for having me. My story might be a little different. I am a daughter of somebody from what I found out later on in my years from addiction, um, and it's a very emotional story, so um, I'm going to try to keep it together here, guys. It's my safe space here. Um, when I was 16 years old, my mom left when I was, left me, abandoned me and didn't know why. When I was 10 years old, my mom told me that she did not know how to be a mother. I knew right there that I needed to figure things out quickly. When I found out later on, when my mom told me that she couldn't find her pills to me, that was one of the things that, that sparked that there was something wrong. When she abandoned me at 16 years old, I was working three jobs, one of them as a nurse's assistant assistant, because I was so young at 16 years old, I could not be certified. I wanted to find the answers. I wanted to find out what happened to my mom. That is how I got started. 
it became my addiction to find out what's wrong with society. What's wrong with why would my mother that worked at the Pentagon with stellar people like Colin Powell and, and Norman Schwarzkopf and right there with Rumsfeld, how my mom could be the stellar of the community and be the crumbling on the inside. I want to thank Misty when she made that comment about taking hostage. Because it not only affects the person that's having the trauma, that has so much trauma that they're beating themselves up to doing these things, such as you know going towards substances, the trauma that she in turn used to start using. What, what, what happened? So I continued on my quest and I had to keep going because I knew I had to find the answers. Now, when you have substance abuse, you have a hand in hand, you have some, some form of trauma, you have some form of unresolved mental health thing that's going on with you. Basically childhood trauma. What happened? So when I took my mom's story into hand, finding out all about her background, and then moving forward into my nursing uh, community. I found that there was an enormous amount of people that were suffering, that were in healthcare. That 50% in 2010, the American Association of Occupational Health Nurses in 2010 said that 50% higher chance for nurses to become addicted with substances. That includes drugs and not only that, alcohol. What do we have? That was pre-COVID. What do we have now? They said before one in seven nurses pre-COVID were at risk for substance abuse. We have a magnificent amount of trauma going on with nurses seeing massive amounts of fatalities. When I decided to continue being a ninth grade dropout not even finishing the ninth grade because of my mom's decisions. I decided that I was going to be a nurse. I wanted to be a medical examiner. So I decided that I was gonna continue on and find the answers forensically, both with, for psych psychiatric, substance abuse, everything that I could find out in forensics. What is wrong with our healthcare system? Well, what I found when I was working on my master's of nursing education, I found that there was very little education about substance abuse, alcoholism in the nursing curriculum. I also found out that nurses shunned away from mental health, which also includes substance abuse and alcohol abuse. It outraged me to the point that if my mom just had that ability to have a voice, to be able to talk about the problems that she had in the emergency room, the countless times that she would be, in admit, in, be admitted. That one time, maybe somebody would listen and say, I think we have a problem and get her the help and the resources that she need, needed and to love her where she was at and to help her keep going. Where would I have been? Not, not allowing somebody else's storm to change the direction of my sale. This is something that I had to do. This was my quest. 
everything that was given to me, doing everything that I could to find out answers of my mother, this beautiful person that I just needed to, I needed to continue on. I need to do whatever it needed, whatever was necessary to find the answers out, to help other people to understand about mental health, not call it a dirty secret because substance abuse is a very much a, a dirty secret addiction in healthcare. It's in the stigma, it's, it's a stigma. So when I decided to do my, um, my, my registered nursing career, I had to make sure that I started educating from way back when to that before 2010, talking about how it was important to listen to people that needed a voice that needed to be heard that had their heart there and that were being ignored. That it was necessary to make sure that they get them the resources when they were available. Now I didn't allow my mom and all the situation to affect me with my curriculum because I needed to find out more answers. And that's why I continued on with my schooling by getting my registered nurse and continuing on building that curriculum with my master's in nursing education and starting to change, developing Nurses Against Violence Unite to be able to talk to nurses about addiction, to be able to talk about those nurses that are hurting, that are turning to addiction and also suicide. So to me, it has affected me not only as a child, but it has affected me also in my career choice and something that I feel is necessary that I need to get out and I need to stand on whatever I can platform to talk about. We have the choice to change healthcare, talking about the problem of people not being heard, to being in the corner crying, to not being able to have a safe place, to be able to talk about the problems that they have. We have a lot of work to do. We have a broken healthcare system. A lot of it has to do with not only mental health, but also addiction. Because if you can't help this, you can't help this. And it is our job as being somebody that you was using at one time, they understand how being alone, you sometimes may feel. And the family member wanting to help and they have no, no resources because they can't get an appointment until three months later. So it is our job. And this is a beautiful you know, summit that we're having to make sure that people feel supported out in the community. Because without the voices of so many people that are on this panel, those other people that are watching might feel like they are alone and you are not. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sandy. Thank you, Dr. Santa. That was um, that was emotional for me. Thank you so much for sharing your story and being transparent and vulnerable. Thank you so much for that. Our next speaker is Anisha Freeman. Now she's another woman that has a lot of letters behind her name. So once I introduce her, we'll ask her, what does those mean? Anisha Freeman is a person in long-term recovery with over 21 years of complete abstinence with from all drugs and alcohol. She is a master level therapist. Oh, that's what a MSW means, who also has an MBA. 
Initiates the creator of a copyrighted transmarked award-winning program titled The Lies That Binds. The LTB program, Youth and Adult Model, is based on the findings of noted experts in the field of neuroscience and psychology. She provided her adult program to 61 district courts, drug court, and sobriety court programs in Grand Rapids, Michigan from 2004 to 2015. The program continued to utilize by the court system delivered by another counselor trained and certified to deliver the model until he retired in August of 2020. The youth version of the LTB program has been delivered by various organizations in Michigan and is currently being utilized by three youth programs in Ohio. Anisha is a guest lecturer at universities and a pro and prolific trainer for the human service industry. She is a published author who has written several books, workbooks, and two programs manuals. In November 2012, she launched her consulting company, Anisha Freeman and Associates Consulting Services, LLC. Please welcome Anisha Freeman. Welcome. Hello, thank you for having me, Gigi, and thanks for putting on a panel about this very, very, very important topic. Again, my name is Anisha Freeman. I'm a person in long-term recovery. And what that means is I have not used any drugs or alcohol in over 21 years. My drug of choice was crack cocaine. I was the addict that the other addicts talked about. I made the other people on drugs feel good about themselves. Some of them would look at me and say, if I ever get like that, I'm gonna get some help. And I would usually reply, can I use your lighter? Because I did not care what they were talking about. There was a point in my active addiction when I crossed from abuse into dependency, when the drugs became synonymous with oxygen. It was not like I might breathe today. No, I must breathe today and by any means necessary. This is when I became psychologically addicted to the drugs because there were some things that I could do when I was high that I could not do when I was clean, such as feel comfortable in my own skin, not care what other people thought about me, not be controlled by other people's facial expressions. And when the drugs would wear off, I would be back to the wounded little girl from the east side of Detroit who got raped at the age of six by a family member who was babysitting her, who was raised by a mother who had several mental health disorders that unfortunately for me, she was not diagnosed until I became an adult. She suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder and depression. The first 12 years of my life, I was raised in a torture chamber. I was physically, mentally, verbally, and spiritually abused because she was a religious fanatic. So all of the abuse was done in the name of God. When she went to work, the babysitter would take over the torture with the sexual molestation. My first drug of choice was food. I started self-medicating this trauma. I didn't know at the time that's what I was doing. I started self-medicating my trauma with food. By the time I became a teenager at the age of, well, really a preteen, at the age of 11, 
I resembled an adult woman. Most of the people in my family, we look like adults physically when we're 11 and 12, but I was a wounded little traumatized girl in the body of a woman in the city of Detroit. That's a dangerous combination anywhere, but it was really problematic in Detroit. I got introduced to marijuana and alcohol and mescaline and other types of drugs as a teenager. By the time I entered my early 20s, I got introduced to snorting crack cocaine. I'm sorry, snorting powder cocaine. And then eventually I got introduced to crack cocaine. My addiction, I, I spent years on the street. I got introduced to the crack cocaine subcultures in Detroit. I wasn't raised in the streets or on the streets, so I had to be socialized into those subcultures. I went in and out of mental hospitals, jails, and drug rehabs for 15 years. The police would pepper spray me when they got out of their car because I would have psychotic breaks where I would start running down the street, picking up bottles and bricks and throwing them at people. That was another manifestation of the untreated trauma. They would pepper spray me and take me down to Detroit Receiving Hospital in handcuffs. Detroit Receiving Hospital had the crisis center, which was the central intake for all of the mental hospitals in that area. They would, they would, they would have to have someone standing there with leather straps to restrain me when they took the handcuffs off. That's how bad the addiction and the untreated mental health disorders progressed to. On August the 7th of the year 2000, I was standing in front of a crack motel in Detroit, Michigan. And I heard a voice deep inside of me say, leave now or die here. The grace that's covering your life is being lifted today. And I walked away that day. I went back to a treatment center that, that had impressed me. I had been at that treatment center before. It was in Chicago, Illinois. But I went back. I went back because they had tapped into something the first time I went. They had a trauma specialist on their team. They had a, they had a whole team of people working with us. But the trauma specialist provided me with a foundation that I was able to build on. No other place I had ever been to going in and out of these places, treatment centers for years had ever addressed my trauma, but they did. I still had a lot of work to do when I left and I went to a recovery house in Grand Rapids, stayed there two years, started going to college, completed four college degrees, so I have an associate's degree in computer applications technology, a bachelor's degree in business. I have a master's degree in business administration, and I have a master's degree in social work. I'm a certified alcohol and drug counselor, and I'm a certified peer recovery mentor. All of my degrees are graduated summa cum laude. I'm saying that to carry a message of hope to anyone who's listening, who's struggling with addiction, who may have been written off as incorrigible because I had been written off. They said she she cannot be helped. I want to tell you that as long as there is breath in your body, there is hope. Don't you ever give up. Two years after I walked away from the crack house, I was the personal assistant of the Honorable Reverend George K. Hartwell. He was the director of the Community Leadership Institute. He was also the mayor 
of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Two years after I walked away from the crack house, I was the personal assistant to the mayor of Grand Rapids. I consulted with the court system from 2004 to 2015. I've had state, local, and federal contracts with organizations. I help other people. I'm here to tell you there's hope. There's hope. You can get off drugs. You can recover. And what I wanna challenge you to do is to get the help that you need if you've had some trauma. Go to trauma therapy. That was the root cause of my addiction. I was medicating untreated trauma. And when the trauma got addressed, I've been clean ever since. Thanks for letting me share my story. Thank you, Anisha. Thank you, Anisha. You're amazing. Your passion. I mean, your journey is just amazing. I salute you for your courageousness. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Our next speaker is Sparkle Lindsay. She is an influential speaker, addictions coach based in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Prior to the age of 35, she has received ample education in communications and business management, which she has translated to a specialization in executive coaching and influential speaking, as well as recovery and life coaching. To further her credentials, she is also a state licensed recovery coach with the CPSFS, which she has continued to utilize to reach those in need. As she put it in herself in lieu of her personal business, Sparkle LLC, the light at the end of the tunnel. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our fourth speaker, Sparkle Lindsay. All right. Thank you guys for having me. I completely appreciate it. And the last speaker, Anisha, that was awesome. I felt every bit of it. And a big piece of that, a big part of that is a part of my addiction as well. Um, my name is Sparkle Lindsay and I am a motivational keynote speaker. I am an author and I am a nationally certified recovery coach and trainer for alcohol and addiction. And today I can say I am in long-term recovery. And what that means to me is that I have had a chance, a second chance at life and a second chance at being able to tell my story and being able to tell you guys that I had to find myself again. I had to find myself from the inside out. And I knew every piece of what was gonna happen was gonna take everything I had to get back to where I needed to be in my life. So my journey really, really starts out, you know, I was college basketball player. Um, you know, I then graduated, got a double major and a minor. Uh, and I ended up actually going into corporate America where I was worked for three big box companies, 14 years as an HR advocate. And I really, I was really excited to be able to continue moving forward. I was 24 years old at the time, and I just knew I was, I was destined for greatness. I could feel it. And uh, so I got going and I started working and doing a lot of working around the clock. And I found that I didn't drink or use drugs uh, back in the day when I was 20, 21. I really didn't start drinking until I was about 25 and then I couldn't drink, so I started using what was introduced to me, cocaine, cocaine. And from there, 
the cocaine became my everything because I couldn't drink. So I used cocaine to be able to drink more. And before you know it, I started using them as both. But I was also working around the clock. I was working around the clock. Uh, I was battling a lot of uh, conditions, autoimmune conditions. I have myasthenia gravis and lupus. And I was in a lot of pain. So I would drink, I would drug, you know, use a lot of drugs to make sure that my body could keep going. And in corporate America, you know, you work a lot of hours. You work 13, 14 hour days, you get right back up and then you start again. And I continuously made this a trend. And at first it was like, I was just having a good time. I was partying, um, you know, living the life. And then before you know it, this drug just, it just consumed me, took me over. I wouldn't go anywhere without it. I had three or four drug dealers on hand. I basically had to, I'd call and I'd tell my friends, I'm not going out. I'm not doing anything until I get what I need. till I get my cocaine. And I then started noticing that I was really rude. I started getting real rude with people and, and a lot of things started happening. And so there was one day I was hungover and I had to go into work. And I remember I had a, um, a, an associate at the time who was doing really well, but he was looking for somewhere to live. And me being HR, I had done a lot of work trying to find a place for him to live, trying to find a place for him so he could actually go to work and be to work on time. And so when I met up with him, the, the, the place that I had asked for him to be able to get this living, they it came through and they said yes. So when he walked in, I wanted to tell him the good news. And he shrugged me off, kind of shrugged his shoulders off at me and said he had to use the restroom. And right away in my heart, uh, I knew something wasn't right. I knew it and I could feel it. Um, it gave me chills. So trusting my intuition, um, I walked through and I remember walking to the bathroom because I said, I just want to, I just want to make sure he's okay. I want to just as soon as he comes out the bathroom, I just want to tell him the good news. So as I'm walking towards there, I'm getting this feeling in my stomach, the pit of my stomach. And I, I you know, I, I'm chills and I'm standing by the bathroom and out of nowhere, I'm like, no, this is just taking too long. So I open the door and he shoots himself. And immediately I hit the ground uh, and I fainted. And uh, that was when trauma became real for me. And my trauma after that, after that day, uh, it changed my life forever. Um, I can say that in all reality, I had so much trauma, I started using around the clock. I was trying my hardest to stay, keep working, forget about it. I was having nightmares. And before you know it, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do it any longer. I had to surrender. And when I surrendered, I surrendered to God. I surrendered to saying, I can no longer go this way. And when I got called into work, I said, unfortunately, I've got to save myself today. And I am not taking this promotion that you guys are giving me because if I don't save myself, no one else will either. I remember walking out of that office and I was so scared, but I knew it was going to change my life forever. And it did. And today I can say that out of everything I've ever done, 
taking the chance and putting myself first for the first time in my life has been the best thing I have ever done. And I encourage each and every one of you guys, if you guys are out there, to stand up and stand out for yourself. Make sure that you hold yourself accountable for the things that you have to do in your life because you're worth it. And when I say you're worth it, I mean working on this stuff from the inside out, taking your trauma, using it, and stepping into your power is what we have to do. Through all of this, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's an epidemic, whatever it may be, if you know yourself and if you fight to be curious about yourself, there is nothing that will ever take you back or put you in a situation where you can't fight. And I know that from the bottom of my heart, I am so blessed to be able to be able to say right now, I am an author of being a better version of me. And I have a workbook and a workshop and I have my own company. And I have now seen the light at the end of the tunnel. And I am so blessed to have that. Thank you guys for letting me share today. Thank you, Sparkle. Thank you. Wow, you got tears in my eyes, Sparkle. I love that. I love that. Now, this is an amazing event. Um, all of these speakers are sharing. They're being transparent and vulnerable. For all of you guys, all, everyone that's out there listening, looking, you know, this is amazing. They are amazing individuals. This is, we're still in, we're not even in the middle of the event. We have some more amazing speakers coming forth. So again, thank you so much, Sparkle, for your transparency. And we're here to support you. Like I said, this is a safe space for everybody. We're here to support everybody. Thank you, Sparkle. Our next speaker is Dr. Seth Buxey. Did I pronounce that correctly? I know you've been on plenty of platforms with me. Perfect, Seth perfect. <laughs> Great. He is a social behavioral mentor and addiction specialist. He is an author, speaker, TV, radio, and social media personality, and respected pioneer in addiction consulting. He delivers life-changing material and personal expertise to shift clients towards a more fulfilling future. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Dr. Seth Bugsy. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Oh, God. I mean... Some of the speakers we've had so far, it's been, it's been amazing. It's, and I, and I take my hats off to every single person here today. Um, I have so much gratitude, so much gratitude right now. And I feel excited to be aligned with so many wonderful, wonderful speakers. Because we said this, we, we said the same love, the love of connection, the love of healing, the love for change. And I'd like to thank Gigi and, and, and Lakeisha. You know, both of them have given me this wonderful opportunity and this amazing platform to, to use my voice for the voiceless and to share my message, the message of hope, which we've heard a few times said today already. You know, guys, we've been, we've been going through some really distressing issues in recent times, um, to be honest, for as long as I can remember. Um, whether we're whether we're talking about um, racism, whether we're talking about gender inequality, whether we're talking about homelessness, domestic violence, whatever we're talking about, I see a commonality. And today we're talking about addiction. Today we're talking about where we were before and where we are today. 
But in total, when we're talking about these things, we're talking about the fight against injustice. I think as humanity, we've become very disconnected. I myself, I've caused chaos most of my life. I've been selfish, I've been bad at times, hard to live with, but I'm grateful. I'm truly grateful that so many people have given me this second chance, especially my wife and my children, who, you know, I feel blessed that they stayed with me when I was in the madness. And we're talking a 33 year madness. But this is when humanity is at its best, when we support each other. When we support each other and we move forward as a collective and in communion. I feel we must try to avoid cancelling each other out for past mistakes, but instead help each other grow, educate each other and guide each other to redemption. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow panellists, anecdotal experiences which we all have are of course respected, but I'm a firm, firm believer that a lesson lived is a lesson learned. I could talk about so many stories that I was involved with in addiction, but I'm not gonna talk about the mess. I'm gonna try and give you a message. Through the tumultuousness of my life, I think I've ascertained a, a certain comprehension of addiction, a certain comprehension of trauma, and this can't be taught, this can't be read. And I think this conceivably gives me the authority to share my experience in the hope of helping others. And that's what we're here today for. We're here to help others, to educate people, and to help people grow. That's why this platform is so, so needed. Um, I myself, I'm a recovered addict, of course. Um, I'm a victim of abuse and trauma. But today I'm a social behavioral coach, I'm an author, I'm a professional speaker, I'm an addiction psychologist, radio talk show host. But above all, just like every single person on this platform today, I'm a survivor. And my mission is to give those who are suffering a message of hope and to help these individuals transform their lives in a peaceful and powerful way. Through my work today, I offer individuals, gifted individuals, an authentic path to personal development and peace and serenity. And I will guide you to experience a, an abundant life full of self-love, integrity, and of course, in alignment with your highest values. And I hope that my message and everyone else's message today helps someone because just like it helped us. As uh, one of the earlier speakers says, addiction does not discriminate and it comes in many forms. Many people <clears throat> through my work, I've come to believe have this preconceived impression of an addict to be unaspiring and be an apathetic person, maybe someone of pitiable hygiene, whose life solely revolves around their addiction. Now I can subscribe to some of this, but a thought of an addiction is debilitating and at all times with the stereotype of what an addict should be. It's got to be dispelled. I myself, I was born in a, in a very dysfunctional family, but I was adopted at birth um, by a wonderful middle-class couple. I attended an acclaimed boarding school and grew up to be a loving husband and father, but despite my ostensibly picture-perfect life, I became ensnared by the power of addiction, which caused havoc all my life, not just to myself, but affected my loved ones to a great degree. Alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, crystal meth, gambling, 
these are all my vices. Now I'm yet to determine whether I was born an addict or if it's a consequences of some of the woes that lie through at me. But what I do know is that addiction is not the problem, but the solution to the problem. Or as I say in the Buxy recovery process, a brilliant strategy. Again, I'm not gonna go into all my stories, but I was abused physically, racially, verbally, sexually for six years of my life on a daily basis from the age of 11. I suffered wounding bereavements. I've developed an inferiority complex from a very early age. I was diagnosed as bipolar, but to be frank, I don't know if these events caused my addiction or if it was some sort of predisposition. But what I do know, I'm an addict and will always be an addict of some sort. Now it may sound counterintuitive to some people listening in, and I use the term as an addict in the present tense when my aim is to try and help people change their lives. But for me, it all came down to acceptance. You hear this in the fellowship, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. Guys, it was unnerving for me to ask for help, but in all honesty, it was scarier to continue to do what I was doing. My destructive behavior and my volatile mental health that addiction caused played my life to become totally unmanageable. But sometimes a person may have to hit rock bottom or maybe in my case, I was completely done in order to value my existence. And I truly believe that the potency of my self-destruction eventually led me to recovery. Um, I could talk about my story. I've, I, I've written a book about it called Out of the Madness. Please do feel free to look at it. Uh, go on my website to find out more. Listen to the people that are on this platform today because we all have a wealth of knowledge, not just from a from a vocational perspective or from an academic perspective, but most definitely from a personal perspective. Um, you know, sometimes I find it difficult to verbalize the extent of the perils of addiction or the madness, as I call it, primarily because addiction often causes a loss of inhibition and rational thought. And I used to act extremely uncharacteristically, sometimes delving into the realm of the unethical but I was attracted to that lifestyle, the gangster lifestyle and everything that came with it. In retrospect, and I'll finish off with it, um, coming from a place of recovery, my past self is unrecognizable. And the way I acted seems so, so senseless. And now I'm enlightened to the splendor of sobriety. Before I finish, I wrote a poem, um, which I would like to share, if I may. Um, yes, please. Yeah, it's called, um, it's called I Am In Recovery. Um, and it goes like this, um, I am recovery, no other way to be. This ain't my plea, this is my story. This life was killing me slowly but surely, both physically and mentally, destroying my whole family. Messing with my integrity, losing my morality, forgetting my serenity, forgetting my sincerity, taking me to insanity, robbing my dignity, this spiritual malady was taking over me, abundantly grabbing me. That led me to recovery. That's the way it had to be. Somebody had to help me to get me there gradually, just like this evil got me, not knowing where it would take me, leading me to animosity, hurting everyone around me, not caring for humanity, dismissing all tragedy, treating it as a travesty, delusional with anxiety, that's where it took me. It became about you, not me, but it was always about me that got me there selfishly. I know you get me. Today I'm in recovery, time to start loving me, time to start being free. 
No more feeling the grief, giving back to society, being present for my family, showing complete honesty, living beyond my dreams, definitely the place to be without any greed for money, cars or chi-chi, no human could save me. I turned my life over to thee for the first time I began to believe and I started to see that my will will kill me. Surrendering to be free, no ego, just humility. Today I'm recovery. Thank you very much for listening to me, guys. Um, enjoy the rest of this. Please stay, stay, stay and learn from these amazing people on today. Thanks, Gigi. Thank you, Dr. Seth. You know, again, we've been on a lot of platforms together and I always enjoy to hear your stories. You're amazing. Thank you so much for sharing again. Thank you. Our next speaker is Stephen Anthony King. Stephen Anthony King is an author, public speaker, certified relationship coach, talk show host, and co-founder of Complete Chocolate Couples. Complete Chocolate Couples, I like that. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> please welcome Stephen Anthony King. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, my name is Stephen Anthony King. I am a grateful recovering addict and it's really, really good to see you. And before I start, I, I wanna give praise to Gigi and Lakeisha for putting on this wonderful event, giving me an opportunity to speak, but most importantly, for bringing awareness to a pandemic that's been around far beyond COVID. A pandemic that knows no boundaries of race, creed, color, or religion. A pandemic that wreaks havoc, death, destruction, and dereliction wherever it goes. But today, myself and all these panelists, we bring to you a message of hope, a promise of freedom, that an addict, any addict, can stop using drugs, lose the desire to use, and find a new way to live. Once again, I, I, I have to say, I'm so grateful to be able to speak here. And it couldn't be more timely because past Tuesday, January 4th, I celebrated 24 years clean. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, if you don't believe what you hear, believe what you see. <laughs> I am that addict, that any addict who is now celebrating 24 years clean, but it wasn't always that way. I am also that any addict who has a single father while using cocaine, emotionally abandoned his three-year-old son. I am that any addict who suffered from paranoid delusions to the point of holding that same three-year-old in my arms and contemplated jumping out of the window. I am that any addict who would walk to the drug dealer crying because I didn't want to use, but I couldn't stop. I am that any addict who stands before you with 24 years clean. And it's important that you hear, not just from me, but from all the other esteemed speakers, the horrors of active addiction. And I'm speaking to the individual who's on here listening now and still using, who thinks that recovery may not work for you. It's a lie. I'm speaking to the person who thinks no one knows what you're going through. I can guarantee you that you will hear your story today. If you stay and you stick, any addict can stop using drugs. 
lose the desire to use and find a new way to live. You know, it's so funny. My wife just asked me earlier this week as we celebrated my anniversary, do I regret using drugs? And as I thought long and hard, right, you know, my answer was yes and no. You know, yes, I regret the harm, the pain, the misery, the sorrow that I caused my family, the people who love me. But no, I don't regret the fact that drugs broke me. And I just had a conversation with the great Les Brown not too long ago. And he said to me, you know, sometimes God has to break a life in order to build a life. And that stuck out to me. I had to be beaten into submission. I had to surrender. My way was not working. And, you know, as I go back and as I look back, my addiction started way before the drugs. I grew up as a child severely nearsighted. I wore thick, thick glasses. And growing up in school, I was the object of ridicule. I was Coke bottles. I was four eyes. I was Mr. Magoo. So I developed low self-esteem at a very early age. And you know, I was just talking and I may be dating myself. Some of you may not even know this reference, but my first drug of choice was fantasy. And my fantasy was G.I. Joe, an action figure. I would come home from a day of being teased at school. And you know, my, my brother and sister were older than me, so they were never in the house. So it was just myself and my action figures. But when I was with my G.I. Joe, I could be in off, off in Africa saving the world. I was the superhero. So at a very early age, I learned how to escape reality. I learned how to get outside of myself. And as I progressed in age, obviously you're introduced to these elements. And once I got a hold of cocaine, it gave me this feeling of confidence. It gave me this feeling of invincibility. It gave me this feeling of being able to talk to the girls without being bashful or afraid. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with it. And for 18 years of my life, I chased that first hit. Everything, everything, my whole being was consumed in the thoughts and ways to get more. I compromised my morals, my values. You know, as I mentioned, I was a single father. And, you know, I'll never forget the days and, and, and these, these, these stories still haunt me to this day. You know, I used to tell my son, my three-year-old son, that I was going to the store and I'd be right back. And after a while, he knew that I wasn't coming back. And he would grab me by my leg. And as I'm trying to leave the house, he would scream, Daddy, don't go, don't go. But I had to use and I would pry him off of me, push him in the house and close the door. And as I'm walking away, I could hear him banging on the door saying, daddy, don't go, don't go. That is something that I would never do in my right mind. But drugs have a power to turn us into something that we don't wanna be. So if you're out there and, and you're condemning yourself for the things you've done, it is not you who's doing it, it's the drugs. But once you become aware, and once you know, you can't not know, 
anyone who's listening, you're on this Zoom platform for a reason. There are no coincidences. You know, they talk about God, uh, coincidences are God's way of staying anonymous. You're supposed to be here. You are to hear your story through our message. You are to hear the message of hope that any addict can stop using drugs, but there has to be a heartfelt surrender. There has to be the understanding that I alone cannot stop this. I'm a proud member of a 12-step program. And what I've found through working the 12 steps is that drugs wasn't my problem. My problem was me. Drugs was how I dealt with my problem. I had a spiritual void. I had low self-esteem. I had trauma of having, you know, my first eye surgery when I was just seven years old, having three more by the time I was 16, losing sight in my right eye shortly after college never feeling like I measured up until I used drugs. And then I became this magnificent buddy love. <laughs> That's Sherman Clump's alter ego. But there's a price to pay for being buddy love. There's the downward spiral. There's the path of destruction that you leave for the people who love you. There's the deeper and deeper hole that you dig for yourself because you know what you're doing is not right. And I thank God for the gift of desperation. I thank God for breaking my denial. I was the addict who still went to work in a suit and tie until going to work got in the way of my using and I left the job to collect unemployment. A disease that's cunning, baffling, and insidious. It'll make you think that doing the right thing is the wrong thing and make you think that doing the wrong thing is the right thing. But I thank God for that desperation. I thank God for breaking me so that he could rebuild me through the 12-step program. My 12-step program is Narcotics Anonymous. And when I stepped through those doors, I was afraid, I didn't know what to expect, but there was a spirit in those rooms that engulfed me. And I took a chance and I raised my hand and said, my name is Steve and I'm an addict. And I have one day and the place erupted in cheers and applause. I had never felt so accepted in all of my life. All the low self-esteem, all the teasing and all the trauma and all the complexes quickly just went out the window when those people applauded for me. I felt loved, I felt a part of. And it was that elixir, if you will, that kept me coming back for the second day and then the third day, and then the fourth day. And somewhere along the line, within 90 days, the obsession to use drugs lifted. I don't know when, I don't care when, but the obsession to use drugs, which haunted me day in and day out, to the point where I would go to the, the drug dealer and tell him, if I come to you, don't sell me drugs. How insane is that? He's a drug dealer. He's gonna sell me drugs. 
I would hide my money just to go and get it. I would tell people to hold my money just to threaten them to give me my money back. I couldn't do it on my own. But when that obsession to use drugs was lifted from me, I got a sponsor. And that sponsor said, okay, you've gotten clean. Now you have to learn how to stay clean. And that's when I embarked on the step work. And the step work in introduced me to me. The step work introduced me into why I did all of those dirty, rotten, stinking, filthy things that just lowered my self-esteem more and caused me to use more. I was in this endless loop. I did things that weren't right. I didn't want to feel that. So I would do something not to feel that. But the thing I did not to feel that wasn't right. So I wouldn't feel right. And I'm just like a dog chasing his tail. But once getting into the step work, and once finding out, first of all, getting a connection with a higher power. My higher power has always been with me. Call him what you want. I choose to call him God. But whatever you serve is okay. It's the God of your understanding. The first three steps gave me a, a closer connection to that higher power. The next four steps taught me about me, why I did all the things I did. It helped me to identify character defects. It helped me to also identify the neutralizing spiritual principles that would help me combat those character defects. And then there's the maintenance steps. And then there's the amends. And the final step, the final step is to carry the message of hope to addicts who still suffer. And that's what I'm doing today. And every day that I wake up, that is my goal. My prayer is God, show me who to help today and give me the power to carry that out. You know, there's a saying in recovery, you can't keep what you have unless you give it away. And that's what we are doing today. You know, I wrote a book. I mentioned to you in the beginning of my greeting, it's really good to see. And it's the, it's the title of my Amazon number one best-selling book. And, you know, it, it chronicles my journey with blindness and how I recovered my sight. And a lot of the concepts and principles in my book parallel my story of addiction. I was blind when I was out there. I couldn't see. I couldn't see me the way God saw me. I couldn't see how I was wasting my life. But through recovery, I have regained not just my sight, but my vision. And my vision is to continue to do work like this with good people like this. So if you're out there and you're listening, you too can stop using drugs. You never have to use drugs again. What I would ask of you, is if you're interested, follow me on Instagram, Stephen Anthony King, Stephen with a V, Anthony King. If you want, go to Amazon, get a copy of my book. But whatever you do, don't leave here. Don't leave here and not apply some of the information that you are receiving. I thank you, Gigi. I thank you, Lakeisha, for this opportunity. I'm Stephen Anthony King. I'm a grateful recovering addict, and it's really good to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Wow. Thank you, Stephen, for sharing your story. Amazing.
continue doing what you're doing, changing lives one life at a time. Thank you. Our next speaker is Mark Stephen Pooler. Mark Stephen Pooler, self-leadership and transformation expert, professional speaker, radio host, public speaking coach, PR expert, creative entrepreneur. Mark Stephen Pooler has overcome the kind of adversity that most people cannot even comprehend. He has taken the resilience from his past trauma and turned that into an inspirational determination to help others. After years of being severely bullied, Mark turned to drug addiction and started down a dark road of self-destruction that nearly ended his life. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Mark Stephen Pooler. Welcome. I can share what rock bottom is. Rock bottom is being on your hands and knees, picking up fluff off the carpet, thinking it's a crack cocaine rock that you have dropped. That's rock bottom. I was always a guy at school that got bullied about the way I looked, about my sexuality. That led to really low self-esteem, low self-confidence. I left school with a really bad education. My education really suffered. I left school before my 16th birthday and my drug taking started. It started on soft drugs to start with, things like speed, cannabis, and get ready for it, people, air freshener. No wonder everyone says I'm a breath of fresh air. By the age of 21, my life had spiralled out of control, addicted to crack cocaine and heroin. I went out on a party night out with friends. I tried a new clubbing drug on the dance floor, partying, having a great time. The next minute I woke up in hospital, chest all shaven where shock pads had been used on me to bring me back to life. Bruises all up my arm where adrenaline had been pumped into my arms to bring me back to life. I was living a bad, life that was going nowhere. My life started to change when my mom kicked me out of the family home. It went from me being looked after, having all my ironing done for me, having meals on the table, to having to start looking after myself. I moved away from all the people that were dragging me down, all the drug dealers, all the bad associations. So my first tip would have to be, be careful who you spend your time with. People will either lift you up or they will drag you down. Have a look at your circle and ask yourself, would you swap places with those people? If the answer is no, it's time to change your circle. I give up drugs without seeing a doctor. I cold turkeyed, went through the hot 
and cold flushes and pain of giving up drugs cold turkey so i would have to say to people never suffer alone never suffer in silence seek help from a friend a mentor a teacher or someone that you trust never suffer alone and seek medical help that is what they are there for no one should ever suffer alone but it's really important that you admit that you have a problem because until you admit that you have a problem no one else will be able to support you personal development and self-improvement changed my life so i would just like to end on with positive empowering belief systems making great choices repetition small steps every single day and taking action you too can create a better reality thank you thank you mark thank you thank you so much for sharing your story mark we appreciate you we're definitely going to support you thank you our next speaker is chris salem Chris is a world-class speaker, life and business strategist, award-winning international best-selling author, and radio host at Christopher Salem. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Chris Salem. Welcome. Thank you so much, Lakeisha and Gigi. This, th- there have just been some powerful stories here. And what I respect is, you know, being a, an addict, a recovering addict, is the transparency and vulnerability because for me, I had grown up where transparency and vulnerability was a weakness. I hid behind a mask for the first 31 years of my life, living someone else's life because I thought by doing so, not knowing this, that I would have this, you know, this validation and recognition that I've been seeking all along. See, I can say this in hindsight because at the time, I didn't even know what I was doing. Let me give you a little backstory about me. My name is Chris Salem. I'm a recovering addict. I'm also a recovering codependent and a perfectionist. So what does that mean? Well, what that means, what I'm going to explain to you is a little bit of backstory about where my addiction, where it comes from, what what transpired as a result of it, and what was really the underlying root cause to this addiction and how I was able to take this and turn it into a blessing that in the the last 24 years of my life that I've been able to use and help so many people and not only in personal lives, but also in business because this dramatically impacts us in so many powerful ways. I grew up in a home, I had a, a younger brother, a mom and dad. My mother was a wonderful mother, but she was a perfectionist. Everything had to be done right. And when it wasn't that she would end up doing it for you. So I. I grew up from a young age that I had everything taken care of for me because if I didn't do it right, my mother would fix it and take care of it. I had a father that was emotionally uh, absent, meaning that he was often not at home. And when he was, he was checked out and he could often be verbally abusive and in many ways would also be physically abusive with myself and my brother. Now, as a result of growing up in this toxic, dysfunctional home, 
my brother and I just had learned these patterns. You know, there were many good things we picked up from my mom and dad, and then also many things that were not good. And for me, it was a lot of the bad things I picked up from my father. And, and because of that, as a boy growing up, you were always seeking this approval and this, you know, you wanted to be recognized by your dad when you were playing sports, when you were, you know, in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and, you know, you were receiving an award and then your father wasn't there. See, growing up, because of that lack of connection and not having that validation, I was oftentimes looking to seek this out in other people. And when it didn't go fulfilled, I would get angry. So growing up, I had this lack of direction. I had this level of this very low level of self-esteem. I had a lack of confidence. And while I projected it to be otherwise, I even though I wore the mask well, it was just that inside, it, I was just like a ticking time bomb waiting to happen. And this began to really impact my behavior. It began to impact my communication to, my, to myself and other people. I was my own worst enemy, and I didn't know how to go about dealing with it. I had so much rage and anger, and the only thing that would make it go away was when I found alcohol and drugs. And in addition to that, I also developed a, a strong sexual addiction. Now, I'll explain that later. See, addiction isn't just the alcohol, the drugs. Yes, we can have a chemical dependency on alcohol and drugs. But it's, it's really that what, what drives that, that, how we think to do these certain things and through the drugs and alcohol and the sexual addiction, how that really altered my behavior when I was around other people. When I was, it began to use drugs at the age of 12. It started off with marijuana, then it, went, it escalated to mescaline, then it went up to cocaine and cocaine was my drug of choice. Now, there were other little things along the way, you know, like mushrooms and acid and all that stuff. And but it was always the, the cocaine and the in the in the alcohol, because I had such a high metabolism that I could keep drinking and drinking. And it would just burn away. I was thin as a rail. I couldn't keep any weight on me at the time. So when alcohol came in my body, it would just dissipate. And then I had to graduate up into tequila because that was the only alcohol that would have an effect on me to kind of just get me outside of my own self. Now, again, as I mentioned, this led me down a, a, a really bad path of inappropriate behavior, passive aggressive behavior, to seek that validation approval from other people that I didn't get from my father. See, what I'm about to share is that these limiting beliefs that, that are forged in our childhood, and Stephen mentioned this, and I heard this from some of the ladies as well, and Mark as well, that these things have a dramatic impact in how we, not only how we think and how we think determines how we be to become and do and have results. In my case, I didn't know what I was being. I didn't know how to be myself. I couldn't allow myself to be who I was. I had to be somebody else because I didn't like who I was because I didn't even know at the time who really I was. I just knew I was not happy with myself. Everything that I looked at myself was negative. And as a result of that, again, it, it altered everything in terms of the choices I made, the, you know, and, and how I handled situations. I can tell you right now, you know, addiction is real. It is a, it starts in the mind and it's just the alcohol, the drugs, the sex, the gambling, the, the, the eating, overeating, 
whatever that may be, that is a way to escape. It's just the catalyst to help you escape. It's your choice of what's going to make you make it go away. So for me, it was a combination of, of that. Now, I had a lot of aggression. So the cocaine fueled that. The alcohol fueled that. The sexual addiction gave me a high, like greater than what heroin can do. My brother was a heroin addict. He chose heroin. I chose sexual addiction. Now, this sexual addiction took me down a real bad path to prostitutes, to sex clubs. And it wasn't like I required that. I could go out and have girlfriends, but my self-esteem wouldn't allow me that I wasn't worthy of that at the time. And this is how I grew up. I mean, it, it was just this dysfunction that I had to live this lie for so long. And I can tell you that these addictions almost took me out in my 20s. I, you know, I had bouts of alcohol poisoning in, in college. I had two near-death experiences as a result of that, of over, of, of, of over drinking in Mexico in 100 degree heat, drinking a, a bottle and a half of tequila. Now, I'm not the biggest guy in the world. I'm five, nine and a half and weighed 185 pounds and drinking that amount would have probably killed most people at that level. But see, that wasn't the wake up call. So here's where this all starts to turn. The very, the source to my limiting beliefs was my father. Now, was it his fault? No, it's, it's ours. No matter what has happened to us, it's still our responsibility as an adult. Anything that happened in my childhood, the abuse, the ex bad experiences, I didn't ask for that. It happened. It just happened. But as I became an adult, it was, it, it was my responsibility that if, I, if something was going to change, I had to do something for it. I couldn't keep pointing the finger at someone else and keep blaming everybody else for this, even my own father. So as a result of the, this the way I was feeling, I knew I reached a point when my dad was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 56. And I'm a firm believer that at the time, my dad had never touched a drink in his life. In the last four years of his life, he became an alcoholic. He was popping pills and he came down with cancer. And I believe that my father's own guilt of the things he did to my mother and my brother and I growing up in his own limiting beliefs manifest itself into cancer. But that was the turning point for me because it was on his deathbed a day and a half before he died. And my dad just recently celebrated his 22nd anniversary in heaven on December 30th of 1999. And when, when I remember him looking at me and he couldn't speak, he was on morphine, but it was like he was talking to me. If I could do it differently, I would have done it. I would have been a better father. It wasn't that I didn't love you. I didn't know how to love you because I never had it grown up from my own father. He was only repeating the same things that happened to him, to my brother and I. My brother went down a path of getting arrested, serving time in jail, being a heroin addict, and to this day being on methadone and living uh, under disability with my mother to this date. I would have went down a similar path, but I, I had the I, I had this intervention, this divine intervention with that experience with my father that changed my life forever. The very source to my limiting beliefs, not blaming him. That was my responsibility because I had, I, I had a choice to either owning it or doing something about it. And I chose to be the victim up to that point and blaming everyone else, blaming the universe. I decided then I was going to take responsibility. I didn't know how. I didn't know when. I had this strong sexual addiction that I could never do anything to, to get rid of. 
And I, at that point, had been, I had not touched a drink in two years. I was in an AA program, but I was clean and sober with drugs and alcohol up to that point, but I still was suffering from my, my, my sexual addiction. So I wasn't really sober. But that was the turning point for me that I began to take that 12-step program even more seriously and began to incorporate that with a uh, Eastern meditation and philosophy and began to see for the first time that, that the way I was thinking from a fixed mindset, living in the past and the future, would, would, would trigger those limiting beliefs in any fearful situation. And when that happened and it brought that anxiety on, that stress, that feeling of anger, the first thing my mind would say is, go escape, go medicate, go find a, a, a woman to medicate with, go find a drink to medicate with, go find a drug to medicate with, this case, cocaine. When I was able to capture that and begin to learn to shift my mind into the moment, now, this didn't happen overnight. I also had ADHD. I was born with it. And, and to really be sit, sitting still to meditate, <laughs> that was very difficult. It took me eight months before I finally got into a meditative state. But here was the thing. That defining moment with my father, I said to myself, do I want to live in this pain that I've lived in for the first 30 years of my life? Or am I going to just do what I got to do, even though I don't feel it's working and I hate doing it, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I developed this level of discipline and that consistency eventually led to where I got to a meditative state. And through that process of learning how to let go of the control I couldn't control, learning to shift away from expectations, from outcomes into the present moment, to trust the process, to believe in my higher power, but yet believe in myself for the first time in my life, both, not just my higher power, but myself. Now, my, my belief in myself is not where it is today, but back then I first got the first glimpse of belief in myself that I never had before. And I began to realize who I really was, that this person that I walked around with this mask on was not really who I was. I had strengths and I kept hiding these strengths and trying to mask my weaknesses and focusing on my weaknesses. And when I began to really get to the root cause of my limiting beliefs, which was my father, to truly release that and forgive him, and more importantly, myself. This didn't happen overnight, took some time, and was able to release this out of my body from every cell and from my mind. When I finally had this clear slate from meditation and journaling and having a daily routine of waking up at 4 a.m. and making my bed and get, learning how to think in the moment of trusting the process of controlling only what I could, and the only thing I could control each day was my communication to myself to other people, my behavior, my attitude, my emotions, knowing I could choose the emotions to the situation I was facing and my course of action. When I learned to let go of the control I couldn't control, that was communication with other people, their behavior, their attitude, their emotions and course of action. When I let go of that and shifted away from expectations tied to outcomes from a fixed mindset, when I learned how to be present, it changed everything. And I began to see how my limiting beliefs were impacting every aspect of what I did in my, my career, how I showed up in relationships, my decision-making, my confidence level. And when I began to continue to, to work on that through discipline and consistency, still working the 12-step program, my whole life changed. And from there, everything changed for the good. My name is Chris Salem. 
I'm, I'm a recovering addict, a codependent, and a perfectionist. And I am glad to be part of this room with everyone sharing heroically these stories that have transformed their lives, helping others to do the same. And if we can do it, you can do it. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. You know, being a perfectionist is not that bad. I'm a perfectionist myself, so kudos to a fellow perfectionist. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your story. You're welcome. Thank you. Our next speaker is Ben Swicegood. Did I pronounce that correctly, Ben? Okay, great. Yep. Ben is a motivational and inspirational speaker, a performance coach, and a real estate agent in Virginia. He teaches that the experiences we go through from childhood to adulthood shape our beliefs about ourselves and the world around us. These beliefs can limit us or empower us. I like that. Can limit us or empower us. This is why he is so determined to help people break free from the chains of limitations that are holding them back from reaching their full potential. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Ben Swicegood. Thank you so much, Lakeisha. And thank you so much, Gigi, for having me on. This has been an amazing day. And I hope everyone is taking some notes because there's been some powerful, powerful stories and things shared uh, this evening. But as a famous person once said, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. When I was like six or seven years old, I remember going with my dad some mornings to Dunkin' Donuts and my dad was popular. He was successful in business and he would meet friends and colleagues there at Dunkin' Donuts. And I would be sitting there eating my nice warm cinnamon roll and I'd be looking at my dad, watching him interact. And I remember thinking when I grow up, I wanna be just like my dad. Those words replayed in my mind years later while sitting in a jail cell, strung out on drugs with nothing left but pain and regret. Have you ever looked at your life and thought, how did I get here? I started using drugs when I was 15 years old to fit in with the popular kids at my school and mostly marijuana, graduated to cocaine, some mushrooms, some acid as others have talked about. But at the age of 22, I finally found what I thought to be the answer to all my problems, heroin. After a few years of heroin addiction, I had lost my job, my house, my car, my girlfriend, my family, my friends, pretty much everything. And I was staying with a couple of guys in a not so good place. But one day something in me said, it's time to go. Like I just felt this feeling in me that it was time to get out of where I was. And for most of my life, I had ignored that still small voice. But this time I listened and did what any young man would have done in my situation when he needed help. I called my mama <laughs> and she reminded me that the next day I had a court date and I knew if I went to this court date, I was going to get locked up because I'd broken my probation, but I didn't care. I just felt in my gut that I needed to get out of where I was. So I went to court and just as I thought I was locked up, but after a few days, one of the guys that was in that house that I was staying in, comes into jail, into the pod right next to mine. And he begins to tell me a story. He said, a couple of days after you left, him and his friend Yancey robbed a bank. This particular guy got caught 
buying stuff at the mall, which is how he ended up in jail. But the other guy, Yancey, he smoked, sniffed, and shot up his money until he ran out. Later, we found out that Yancey would go back to that same bank to rob it again. This time, there was a security guard there. And when the security guard approached him, he pulled out a sawed-off shotgun and shot him at point-blank range, killing him. Years later, he would be convicted of murder and sentenced to death here in Virginia. Recently, when I took my mom out for her birthday lunch, she told me what happened that day she came to get me. She said, I pulled up to the house and opened up the trunk so that you could put your bags in there. And Yancey, who walked down to the car with me, he came to my mom and he said, I'm glad you came to get Ben. He needs to get out of here. There's still hope for him. And my mom said, there's hope for all of us. And Yancey said to her, no, not for me. There's no hope for me. That day, one of us chose to surrender. The other chose to resist. One of us chose hope. The other chose hopelessness. One of us chose life. And the other chose death. Ladies and gentlemen, for years, I was hanging out with the wrong crowd. We've heard others speak about that today. I mean, people that had no vision, no goals, no direction. And it was Jim Rohn, my mentor, who said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Ask yourself this question today. Who are you spending most of your time with? Are they good for you? Are they heading the direction you want to go? We must not only be aware of the people we spend time with, but also the places we hang out in. Clement Stone says you are a product of your environment. So choose the environment that will best develop you towards your objective. It wasn't long after I got out of jail the first time that I found myself hanging out with the wrong crowd again in the not so good places. Why do you think we tend to do the same things over and over and over and over again, thinking we're going to get a different result? I eventually ended up back in jail. And this time I was really, really sick from heroin withdrawals. And all they would give me for the pain was ibuprofen. Four times a day, four ibuprofen. And I'm having heroin withdrawals. I'm not eating very much. And so one night I went down to get my nightly dose of ibuprofen and I fainted right there in the middle of the pot. And I woke up in the hospital, handcuffed to the bed with a correction officer in the room. I had all these wires, you know, attached to me and it felt like needles poking me and I was freezing cold. And even though I had multiple blankets on me, I was freezing. And a doctor comes in and says, you've lost too much blood and we need to do a blood transfusion to save your life. Sign here. Life is like a box of chocolates. I didn't know what to do. My life was flashing before my eyes. I was in and out of consciousness. I was scared. I was all alone. But I decided to sign the paper. And that day in the hospital, I was saved by the blood. A couple of days after the hospital ordeal, I got down on my knees 
for the first time in my life at 30 years old in a jail cell. And I prayed. And I said, God, I can't do this anymore. I've tried to do things on my own and I keep failing. I've lost everything. I've hurt people. I said, God, if you're real, I need your help. Mm-hmm. You know, they say the first step to recovery is admitting you have a problem. Mm-hmm. Well, it took me 16 years, but finally, after five felonies, two incarcerations, avoiding a bank robbery, and almost dying, I finally said, I've got a problem and I need help. Mm-hmm. Once you can admit, who you really are, then and only then can you start to become who you were really meant to be. In my experience, recovery takes three things. And if you're listening and you wanna stop repeating this cycle, then I suggest writing these three down. Number one, time. Number two, motivation. Number three, support. It took me many years to almost destroy my life. And it took me many, many years to put my life back together. You know, we live in a microwave society where we want everything right now in 30 minutes or less, in 30 days or less. We want quick fixes. But recovery takes time. When I got out of jail, I went to to a church. I got involved with a discipleship program. And I learned a verse that changed my life. And it's stuck with me ever since. It's Romans 12, 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your thoughts. For many years, I thought of myself as a failure, as a drug addict. And I was. And I became a great drug addict because I believed it so well. But when I stopped believing that lie and I started believing the truth, my life was changed forever. But it didn't happen overnight. Transformation and restoration take time. If you're in recovery from an addiction right now, then you got to give yourself some time and you got to find some motivation to stick with it. To me, this is the key to it all because recovery is hard and it takes motivation and hard work to get through it. There are moments in life just like right now where we have to decide, do we keep living the way we're living or do we get up and say enough is enough? I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'll do whatever it takes because I'm tired of losing. They say people are motivated by either pain or pleasure. Well, I don't know about you, but I had enough pain to last me a lifetime. And I had given up on my dreams of being successful like my dad. But I got to the point where I became extremely motivated to turn my life around and dream again. So motivated that, that, that nothing would stop me. I didn't care how hard it was. I knew it would be worth it, but it took support. I burned a lot of bridges in my addiction, but time heals most things, as they say. My relationships with my family eventually got restored and healthier relationships were formed. I leaned heavily on my church community and others that were overcoming addictions in their life. And I no longer saw myself as an addict. 
I saw myself as a new creation. The old had passed away and the new had come. That was 16 years ago. And I've been clean ever since. Today I have a beautiful family, a nice house, a nice car, a great career in real estate. I'm a speaker, a performance coach. I get the opportunity often to share my story and my message of hope. It took me a long time, a long time to grow up and be like my dad. But today I stand before you as a man that has not only grew up to be hardworking like my dad, but also a man that is trying to utilize his God-given abilities so that I can make an impact on this world. And I would encourage each of you to spend some time with the Lord today and discover what's your God-given ability and then use them to motivate yourself to break free and to reach your dreams. There's Mark Twain who says, the two most important days are the days you were born and the day you find out why. You were put here on purpose, for a purpose. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't create losers. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have something special. You have greatness in you. But if you don't use it and do something with it today, then your tomorrow will look very similar to your yesterday. I'm Ben Swicegood. Thank you so much for the opportunity today to speak to you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. I salute you. I love it. I love your story. Thank you so much for sharing. Our next speaker is Duran Rowan. Duran is a native of Louisville, Kentucky. What's that, Louisville? How do you pronounce that, Duran? Louisville. Let's get that. Louisville. Because <laughs> <laughs> they get the home of the greatest boxer, Muhammad Ali. Duran is an international motivational speaker, mentored by Les Brown, author and actor, appearing in plays and stage performances throughout the United States. He is committed to God, fatherhood of two women, hashtag girls dad, and empowering others to focus on a mindset of change. The book written by Duran, A Mindset of Change, is a manuscript written to encourage, motivate, inspire, and challenge you to be your best version. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Duran Rowan. Thank you, Leticia, and thank you, Gigi, for this platform. I really appreciate it. And kudos to the wonderful thing that you bring awareness to all these causes. Congratulations on that. But I wanna ask you all a question. Are you enjoying this panel as much as I am, these wonderful speakers? Because I definitely am. And then secondly, are you ready to walk into your recovery? And I wanna lay this on your heart right now, that it's not your portion. It's not your portion of brokenness. Sadness is not your portion. Lack of joy is not your portion. I don't know what's going on. But I won't let you understand that your portion is joy. Your portion is deliverance. Your portion is the love that God put deep down inside of you that wants to elevate you to the best part of your life. Because God didn't make no junk. We know that. God created us for a purpose. God created us for love. And God created us for joy. 
But I must be honest with you. It took me a while to understand my portion. You see, I didn't figure out my portion until I was going into a resort, a resort that had one bathroom, it had one sink, a massive open floor plan, and overpopulation. That resort was the county jail. And when I was in the county jail for my second felony, an old man in the jail cell told me, he said, he said, uh, all night long he kept looking at me. And when they called my name to come forth to the, to the bar cells to be released, he said to me, he said, youngin, when you leave here, I want you to burn those clothes. And I turned to look at the old man. I said, man, there's no way I'm burning the clothes in my back. You don't know how much money the clothes in my back cost. So, but because I changed nothing when I was released, because I didn't change my environment, because I didn't change my mindset, and I didn't change the things that I was doing, I landed myself right back in the county jail again for my third felony. And as I sat down on the wall, I began to contemplate what my life would be next. I was, I was distraught. I had no idea where to go next. But the one thing I noticed I had on was the same clothes that I got locked up in the second time. The same shirt, the same pants, and the same Jordans. And that old man's words then became prophetic to me. Like, how would he know this? So when the judge called me out for the third time, the judge said something to me. He said, Mr. Roy, I don't know who you are from Sam. He said, but I can tell this is not your path. I can tell this is not your life. And I want to stop right here and just tell someone who's listening to me. Wherever you are right now, and whatever mode of recovery that you own, someone's telling you right now that this is not your path. Someone needs you to believe that you are greater than what you are going through. There is something strong inside you that wants you to get up and fight for your recovery. Fight for your life. Fight for your family. Fight for your purpose. When the judge let me out that third time on probation, he told me, he said, if I see you one more time, Mr. Rowan, I'm going to give you the five years on the shelf. And that scared me, you all. As, as it should have. When I went home, I pulled out my, my dad's barbecue grill and I took the clothes off of my back and I threw them in the pit. I saturated them with lighter fluid and I set them on fire. And my dad came out the house and he said, Dee, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I told my dad the story of the old man in jail my second time being locked up. I said, Dad, he told me to burn my clothes. He was on to something. These clothes are cursed. And my dad said, no, man, you missed the message. The old man did not care about the clothes on your back. He didn't care about the hat or the Jordans on your feet. The old man was telling you to burn away the negativity that you had created in your mindset. Burn away the things that are keeping you incarcerated mentally. Burn away the things that are distancing you from your purpose. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if I'm the only one that needed a good barbecue at that time. But what in your life can you reflect on or that you're going through right now that you need my address 
and you can come and do a barbecue with me? Is it a family member that's stressing you out? Is it a friendship that's taking more from you than it's giving to you? Is it that addiction that you want to get over and you're saying, Lord, I just need help? Here you go. You can borrow my match and my lighter fluid to burn that stuff with you. Because I believe in you. I believe that there's a purpose for you. And I also learned later in life that fire not only destroys and purges, but fire creates. When you burn those things away from your life, you open up new possibilities for God to bless you. When you burn those things away from your life, God wants to show you how much more he can give you. He has something special for you. He has a destiny that's waiting for you. Your story is your glory. Your story is what other people can draw to and say, you know what, if they did it, I can do it. So many people on this panel today gave wonderful examples and some heartfelt moments of how they had to overcome and how they had to be and how they had to face themselves to overcome that addiction. Tennessee Williams said, there will come a time when you will look at the man in the mirror and all you will see is all you will ever be. Look in the mirror and say to yourself, I am more than this situation. Look in the mirror and tell the image that wants to bind you up. Tell the image that wants to defeat you. Tell the image that wants to destroy you to get out of the way because I have something inside of me. I have something inside of me that wants me to get up and fight. My mentor, Les Brown says, when you get knocked down, try and fall on your back. Because if you can look up, baby, you can get up. Remember Mike Tyson? Mike Tyson was the baddest dude around. And I know even the females on this call know who Mike Tyson is. Mike Tyson was a pay-per-view nightmare. You will order the fight, and within one or two rounds, the fight was over, and you're mad. Buster Douglas had the fight of his life. And Buster Douglas won that fight. But remember, when Mike Tyson knocked Buster Douglas down, Buster Douglas didn't get off the canvas until the count of eight. Buster Douglas later said he had his senses. He could have got right back up. But sometimes, you all, when life knocks us down, it's okay to take a moment and figure out where we went wrong. It's okay to take a moment and, 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 and re-energize yourself so that you can get up and fight. Because when he got knocked down, something told him, I can beat this dude. Something told him, I trained for this fight. Something motivated him. So when he got up on his feet, guess what he did? We know the outcome. Buster knocked Mike Tyson out. Whatever it is you're going through right now, whatever it is you're facing right now, whatever it is that's trying to destroy you right now, get up off the mat and fight like you've never fought before. Because on the other side of this situation is power. On the other side of your, of your mistakes and your failure is a new story waiting on you to write it, waiting on you to live it, waiting on you to write a song about it, waiting on you to write a play about it. There's something great that's gonna come out of your story, but take the first step. 
You know, I didn't realize that my life had been centered around what recovering addicts call the, the, the three steps of recovery. I didn't know that till this week until I was preparing for this event. And I learned that one of the steps of recovery is being authentic. All of us have a superpower, not the superpower of Wonder Woman, the superpower of Batman or all these Marvel comics that our kids run around here with, but we have the superpower of being authentic and being transparent because it's your transparency that's going to allow your life to change the trajectory of someone else's. We wear a mask all day now. Some of us have been wearing masks before COVID, but now we have to wear a mask. But behind the mask, who are you? Behind the mask, someone needs to say that I know that person's heart. I can feel their heart. And if they did it, I can do it. And number two, surrender the outcome. Whatever happens, let it happen. But know that you are doing it for the best of you. Somebody may not agree with you fighting for your life. Let them go. Somebody may say you can never change. Let them go. Somebody might say you will always be an addict. That's a label. That's not your last name. God has something more special for you. Don't let them define you. If they define you, they can pigeonhole you. And God didn't make you to be lived in a box. And third one as I close, the third one as I close is do the hard work. Put in the time. Gigi has assembled an awesome panel right now that is here to help you. We were taught in Hungry for Greatness that our community is our currency. This is your community, your community of power, your community of overcoming, your community of your new portion, your new portion of strength, your new portion of family, your new portion of joy, your new portion of self-love. You can overcome. There is something special in you. And I love this part right here. TDJ said, if God was done with you, you'd be dead. And ain't nobody on this call a ghost. So pick up your mat and walk. Pick up your joy and carry it in your heart. Pick up your love and let the world see it. Because there's so much more life in you. I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you. Thank you, Gigi. Thank you, Lakeisha. Thank you, Darren. Listen. So all I got to say, thank you so much for sharing your story. You're amazing. Our next speaker is Jamie Whitfield. Jamie Whitfield is a mother of five children who tragically lost a child to terminal illness when he was only two years old. After attending nursing school and having the school closed before completing the program, Jamie's life started rapidly declining and she wound up on the streets becoming a drug user. Jamie was unexpectedly incarcerated, which ended up saving her life. Jamie has an associate degree in science and is now working as an expert video editor at the television station and their associate producer. Jamie is also a co-host on a weekly show called Mouthy Bras and, <laughs> and has a weekly, I was like, did I read that correctly? <laughs> I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> on a daytime show called Your Hour about her recovery journey, aiding two 
who want to take that next step. Jamie also has a YouTube channel where she posts her segments entitled Recovery Matters. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Jamie Whitfield. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Gigi, for inviting me here and Lakeisha for being part of this panel as well. First of all, first and foremost, I'd like to thank God for allowing me to be here today. And I would like to thank those that shared before me. Um, you know, I've been sitting here laughing at times and crying at others, um, just some powerful messages of recovery. Um, I, I am not a, uh, I have not been in recovery, but for 15 months, but that's 15 miracle months that I've been in recovery and continue to take it day by day to add on to that. Um, I know for me, um, just like, you know, my bio said, um, my void was uh, the, the, deep, the deepest, darkest void I have ever had in my life was the loss of my child um, when he passed away. Uh, I, for seven years, I try to keep myself busy, you know, doing things with my other two children that were here with me, um, but it, it just wasn't enough. And so um, shortly after that, my, I found out my husband of 15 years had um, just been cheating on me and stuff. And so I, I felt like my, and then the school closed down, like it said before, just all these things were happening all at once. And I chose to... I couldn't fill the void anymore. Um, so I chose to go to the streets and, and I always used to say, um, well, I don't know who I am anymore. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know who I am. So I chose to fill the void with drugs because I, I didn't know any other healthy means to do it. And so there, from there, uh, my drug of choice was uh, crystal meth, methamphetamines and um, it, it destroyed my life. Um, I, I tried to uh, sell drugs to keep up with my habit um, before I knew it. The, I, I had three doors uh, visited by the, the police department. And so at one of them times in October of 2018, I'll never forget this day, one of my children, I chose to have him at a trap house with me, my, my own. And um, needless to say, uh, they ended up taking all my children the four of them. And so my mother ended up getting them back three days later. But at this point, I could no longer be around my children because, you know, obviously I was still getting high. And at one point in my life, I, I cannot ever say, you know, the one thing I've learned by working my 12-step program is that, you know, you have to be honest with yourself and be honest with others. And at one point in my life, my children were not enough for me to not get high. Um, I chose to continue getting high, even though, you know, I, I, I wanted custody back of them, but I, I just, I, I couldn't stop getting high. So um, with that being said, I, I couldn't stop doing the meth. I couldn't stop getting high. And this lasted for three years. And I just ran amok out in the streets and continued and continued to do the same things over and over again, expecting different results. And, um, you know, eventually, you know, I learned in my 12th step program that, you know, there's only three options for us if we continue to use, and that's jails, institutions, and death. And, you know, I had already been to jail. Uh, you know, I was already institutionalized in my own mind. And, and, and I was spiritually dead on them streets for three years. And so for me, uh, just the physical death part, um, it really wasn't a bad thing for me. I, it was harder for, I, I have never been scared to die. I've always just been scared to live. 
because of the pain and the suffering that the traumatic experiences that I had been through. Um, so this continued on for the three years and I um, eventually that third time of getting one of my doors kicked in, I, I got a federal indictment um, from the federal government. And so um, eventually they came October 19th of 2020 and picked me up and they put me in jail. And, and from there, I, I really didn't think I was ever gonna get out because like when the feds have you, it's like, okay, yeah, prison and how long? And so for 45 days, they, they made me sit there and it, it was the day that they, it saved my life. Uh, I, I feel like that God uh, just vesseled his way through uh, the law to sit me down and save my life. Um, you know, when my child had passed away, I, I stopped believing in God um, because I thought, how could this God be so loving and so, so great? And he takes my two-year-old away from me. And so as I was sitting in jail, um, you know, I just, I just started thinking about everything, just everything I had done to my children in the last three years. And, and foremost, myself, I had truly lost myself as an individual, as a woman, as a mother, my mom lost her daughter, my, you know, I just can go on and on the list of things that I, I lost myself initially. And so um, I, I just, I prayed, I, I just got on my knees and I just said, please, Lord Jesus. And, you know, please help me, help me. I, I don't, I, you know, it was, it was to the point where, you know, I got high just to be getting high to fill that void. And then I got high because I didn't know what else to do. And, and that was the only thing that made me, it didn't even make me happy, but it, I just, I didn't care about anything. And I, I always refer to my, the person that was in my, the, the, me as a person in active addiction as the imposter, because we truly not our, our true selves when we're out there in our active addiction. And, and so I always refer to that person as the imposter because the imposter took over my life. And as I was sitting in that jail cell and I, I prayed to my, my God, to my understanding, um, I, two weeks later, was went up in front of the magistrate and they allowed me to go to a treatment facility. And I thought, you know what, this is it. And, and I'm gonna take everything that they have to offer me and, and I'm gonna change my life forever. And, and that was at that point too, that I had realized that through my three year of not believing in God anymore and running this muck, that I realized that, you know what, God had never left my side, not one time. Now, one time, you know, I used to think, oh, he's not here with me. What God, you know, and, and, you know, I realized right then and there that God was not behind me. He wasn't in front of me. He was still right next to me. And, and I allowed, um, when I allowed it to be God's will and not my own anymore, that was the day that I knew that it, it, this was his plan and I had a purpose and that I am somebody. I've struggled with that all my life of not feeling good enough. And, you know, even before I picked up the drugs, I, I already had a mind of an addict because I had to have permission from others to be happy. And I had to have permission from others to, to be me, you know, the mask that everybody else had talked about. I had many of them. Um, today though, I am a queen and I know who I am and I know my worth. And, and I may 
not have as many years as other people on this panel, but I'm speaking as a newcomer, as, as a person that's giving that hope that there is hope after dope, you know, like, you know, before I had the dope and then I turned it into hope. And, and this is my message that, you know, a change is going to come if you want it. And, and you have to make different choices in your life to, to be able to have that. And so for me now, uh, like it was said before, I reach out on television. I have, um, I don't care if people know that I'm a grateful recovering addict because, you know, there's somebody out there that's suffering that could hear the message that I have to give, that it could save their lives forever. And I don't care if it's not just one. And so I'm of service of, of the recovery community. And, and by giving, and, I, and I've been taught in the 12-step program as well, that I can only keep what I have by giving it away. And that's what I choose to do. And I choose to stay involved in the recovery community. Um, I actually just got a position uh, working with the um, outreach, I'm an outreach coordinator, and and that means that I am going to help people from prison re-entry re and back into society as productive members of this society and be able to re-enter into a recovery community. So they may be able to get the tools that they may be lacking to actually stay in recovery and stay clean and live a productive life. And and so I've been blessed with many things. I might not have a lot of you know letters and stuff behind my name, but I I am somebody too. And, and so down here in Kansas, that's what I try to do. I, I try to give back to the community. And I also go on television and I just share my own experience, strength and hope about my journey, my new way of life, the, the, you know, the relation, the self-acceptance, the relationships that we, we destroy in our addiction and then how, you know, it, it, it does, you know, in time, time heals. And, and so now, you know, with that being said, you know, a month after I got out of treatment, I got my children back, you know, and a lot of people, it takes them sometimes years to do that. But I already knew that was God, you know, working in my life, you know, because like I said, he never left me. I, I let go of, of his hand, but he never let go, let go of mine. And um, so, you know, with that being said, like, I just, I truly feel like that I, um, I, I have a message to carry, and that's the message of hope that we all do. We we not only do we not only recover, we recover and then we thrive, you know, to reach out to the community and help others. Because like I said before, we can only, only, the only way I can keep what I have, and, and that's the knowledge and, and the spiritual relationship I have with God, is if I give it away and, and give it to others so they, they can have what we have. And that's the gift of recovery because it's truly been gifted to us. Um, you know, I know for me that um, I, uh, I sat here over and over think, thinking, oh, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? But I, I just said, please, Lord, just, you know, just speak for me, speak for me, speak my, my truth. And, and so, you know, it's always easy to speak the truth and, and speak upon something that you, you love. And I had to most importantly put God as my priority and then my recovery second, because I, you know, therefore the longest, like I told you, I couldn't get clean for my kids. So I couldn't make this, oh, I'm doing this for my kids. No, you have to do it. God, God first recovery second. And then everything else comes back into place. You know, you can you can help yourself by putting God first. And so that's what I have done for the last 15 months. And I tell you, uh, he has just opened so many doors of opportunity. And like my name says, it's Jamie W. I'm growing through it because I'm still growing. You know, I always have to keep that open mind and, and have that open mindedness, willingness to, to still grow because I'm still teachable and I'm still growing into uh, this beautiful queen, you know, that stands 
was before you. Um, I couldn't always, uh, I wasn't always able to say that about myself. And that's when, you know, like, I would just make that as an excuse to use. And I don't like myself. I can't do this anymore. And, and, you know, I just, I used to, you know, they tell us in our program, you know, uh, put down the bat, pick up a feather and put the bat down, you know, like stop beating yourself up so hard um, that we all, you know, and it was easy too when I started to be able to have that um, self-love and, and self-respect for me. And so now it's easy for me to have empathy for others and, and want to help and continue in this journey that, um, that I've been gifted. And so, um, you know, with that, I, I just want to close with, you know, if you have the, the only requirement that we ever ask in the 12-step program that I work is the desire to stop using and, and, and you find a, a power that's greater than yourself. And I choose for that power to be God for as my, to my understanding. And so with that, all I can say is too, with all that, there is hope after dope and change will come. You just have to hang on and believe. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you so much. And yes, you do have a purpose. Thank, Thank you. you for sharing your story. Thank you for being so transparent and vulnerable. Our next speaker is Reginald Smith. Reginald is the CEO and founder of Pure Heat Gourmet Sauce. I saw that uh that backdrop you got back there. <laughs> there. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Reggie D, as he called himself, Smith. Hello, hello. How are you guys today? Uh, thank you, Gigi, for having me. Thank you to our wonderful moderator here, um, introducing everybody, lovely job. Uh, my name is Reggie Smith, as uh, she stated already. Uh, I am a serial entrepreneur, uh, former drug user, former drug dealer, okay? Now, long, crazy stories, long, crazy nights. Um, a lot of the stories touch me today, a lot of the things that I've heard because I've been down several of those paths. And I, I was able to see it from both ends of the spectrum. That's the crazy part. Um, at 16 years old, the inner city, East St. Louis, Illinois, one of the most crime-ridden cities uh, in America today still, uh, I was born and raised. Uh, funny thing is, I'm an only child. I did not come from the average uh, household for the community that I was in. Um, my parents were well off. My, my grandparents, the, the family was well off. I decided to put myself in the streets. And uh, my God, <laughs> as they say, the streets does not have love for anyone. Those streets will eat you up, chew you, spit you out. And that's exactly what they did. Um, at the early age of 16 is where it started. Uh, the middle school that I went to, the junior high school, I had to cut through the projects every day to get to school. Um, not needing the lifestyle, but just enjoying all the flashy things. Uh, I came up, you know, 16 years old, right in the middle of the crack era when it started. So all of my friends, of course, uh, in, in the projects, they were selling crack. And I, I saw this easy money coming. I, I saw it coming in and, hey, I don't have to ask my mother for money anymore. If I just start hanging out with these guys from school, making money the same way they're doing it, you know, and, and, and getting fast, easy money. I can get what I want by myself, my own car, put my rims on there, my music, shop all the time, go out without having to ask for money. She's going to give it to me, but I'm going to get fussed at. Um, so to avoid all that, I decided to dip, dibble and dab in the streets and start selling 
crack cocaine like everybody else was doing. Uh, the beginning of the crack era, nobody knew the how dangerous it would become. Nobody knew the uh, uh, the addictions at the time in our neighborhood. We didn't know how bad the thing was going to get. So we went from selling it to, you know, crunching up a little bit, putting it in the marijuana. You know, they call them primos. We started off smoking those. Um, the addiction or, or the light for it or the love for it or the feeling became stronger and stronger. Uh, before you know it, you know, the older people that was out there hanging out, you start messing with the older women at the age of 16 and they're getting high, you know, hey, try this. <laughs> and that's how it all started. It was totally downhill from there. Um, after two or three years, I found myself selling it, uh, just to provide for my habit. And like I said, it was all downhill. You know, I'm, I'm hiding, I'm ducking, I'm in hotels with the women two, three day, two or three days at a time, come out just long enough to make some money to get high all over again. Um, it started showing after a while. Um, I became homeless once after moving out of town and a crazy, crazy situation. I was 18, 19 years old. Uh, before long, I caught a murder case. I caught a murder case, and because my family believed in me, I hid a lot of things from them, and they didn't know the full extent of everything that I was into. They posted my bond, got a good lawyer, um, and I got probation for a murder because in the state of Illinois, as weird as it is, then uh, second-degree murder was probationable, and I received probation. So what do you do or what do you, what do you get when you combine a guy with street smarts, book smarts, using drugs, selling drugs, just beat a murder case, basically, because I got probation. That was a recipe for a disaster, because now I'm feeling like Mr. Untouchable. And everything that I was doing, multiply times 10 at this point. Um, it was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible is all that I can say. Um, time goes on, I'm still doing the same thing. And it wasn't like I was getting high all of the time, because I had new cars, new clothes, kept a haircut every week. Everything was consistent and I still stayed this clean cut guy. Um, but I was getting high. I was losing weight. I was small. My mental state was totally, totally gone from everything that I was doing. Um, before long, I, I ended up catching another case. Um, steady getting in trouble, steady posting bonds, steady beating the cases. And, you know, I just felt like Mr. Invisible and things just got worse and worse and worse for me. Um, eventually, as time goes on, I ended up catching a federal case after cleaning up for a while, staying straight, um, not getting in much trouble. I ended up catching a federal case uh, as a result of some of the business businesses that I own and other things that I was still doing out in the streets and still into. Um, during time, my federal time, during the federal bid, um, I was meeting a lot of people, a lot of business people, a lot of people who were in the streets selling on a major level, a lot of people that were using and ended up catching cases. And it was kind of a wake up call, you know, in between everything that I had already been through. And not to mention, I had a daughter. So I had to get myself, you know, right for her as well. And I got tired of going through this. And so, some of the wake up for me really um, was just the fact of knowing 
that I did not want to spend the rest of my life in prison. That that was a big wake up for me. Uh, I would go to jail and I would see guys that are in there with multiple drug cases, multiple uh, murder cases, just bad crimes. And you just think to yourself, this guy that I'm sitting here playing cards with or this guy that I'm talking to or this guy that I'm sharing a dinner with is probably never, ever, ever going home to his family. And just that constantly working on my mind, I say, hey, that, that could have been me with the murder case. That could have been me with all the drugs I've been caught with. And my money is steady buying me out of those things. But eventually I'm going to run out of time. Uh, that could have been me, you know, dead. I, I celebrated my 48th birthday last year. I'll be 49 in eight days. And I, I, I my, my last birthday party, I had a theme from the show, The First 48. It was called uh, Reggie D's first 48 birthday bash because I always say I could have been on the first 48 as either a victim or a suspect because of the things that I was into years ago for well over 20 or 30 years. And I beat all those things by the skin on my teeth. And through all of this, I've always maintained a relationship with God. <laughs> Selling drugs, using drugs. I've always gone to church. So I, I was kind of straddling the fence and I guess he kind of punished me for that. You know, you're not going to play with me and continue to go to church and, 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 and pretend to be holy, but you're out here in the streets six days a week doing this stuff. But on Sunday, you throw on a, a suit and come and, and, and call yourself worshiping me. Uh, he taught me my lesson a bunch of times. Every time I thought I was going to the top, I would get kicked right back down until after the last time that I got out and I sat down one day, I said, we're going to do this the right way. No shortcuts, no drugs, no drug selling. I opened a trucking company. I was offered several times with, with my 18-wheelers. You can go here, pick up drugs, bring them back for us. We'll pay you this. I thought about it a couple of times because of the money involved. But then I had to say, hmm, what would God do? What would God say? How would this affect me after the fact? You know, as far as karma, that's what I think about now. I think a whole lot about karma because that's what got me into a lot of situations that I've been in. And I didn't do it. And I believe because I didn't do that, I tithe, I, I do what I'm supposed to do in the community as far as giving back. Uh, people that are selling drugs, friends that I still have, I try to either employ them, teach them how to gain employment, teach them about entrepreneurship, uh, the things that I've learned. And I think because of that, it's I'm not going back down that path. I no longer have the urge to go and grab a female for about two days and get high. Let me grab this real quick because I'm doing bad and sell it and flip it and do this and, and make this quick money. It's no longer on my mind. It's strictly business. It's strictly business now. And, and I have a, an ingredient and I call it life secrets. And I do a lot of uh, a peak performance speaking and motivational speaking. And I call it the ingredients, the recipe and the fruit. That's one of my speeches. The ingredients is everything together. Your life's experiences. Um, uh, your, your, your morals, your ethics, everything that you've learned, things I've taken from my mom, things I've taken from my dad's side of the family, things I've taken from granny, things I learned in the streets, all those are my ingredients. You take all those things and put them together, you got a nice recipe. 
that in that recipe, you know, that, that's where your, your good moral character comes in. That's where your, your ethics come in. That's where uh, all the good parts, you, you know, your vibe, your, your, your mentals, that's where everything is ground up and it makes something real nice. And as a result of all those things, you get the fruit. You get to enjoy the fruits of your labor, something real nice, something pleasing, something pleasing to God, something that you don't have to watch your back and wonder about. All those things are the ingredients the recipe and the fruits of life and that's what you enjoy when you do right you don't try to sell you don't try to use entrepreneurship i have it down packed and i have successful businesses now and as a result of that i thank god and thank you guys for letting me share amen thank you reggie mm-hmm. thank you reggie d i'm going to try some of that, that sauce too okay. they, yes, they connect on facebook mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for sharing your story all right thank you our next speaker is Jill Reynolds. Jill is a CEO and event planner, Brave Heart Workshops, number one international best-selling author, podcast host, a mayor. Also, Jill is a speaker and transformational coach. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Jill Reynolds. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me today, everyone. I want to begin by sharing that I'm celebrating 14,937 days 2,333 weeks, which equates to 41 years of recovery from crack cocaine addiction, alcoholism, sexual addiction, 31 years from codependency recovery, and seven years from eating disorders. One day at a time, from code, one day at a time, connecting it all in joy. And through it all, peeling away the onions of my childhood trauma all to come to a place of hope in him, health of my body, a health of my body and healing of my mind and my soul. So I came to discover my recovery when I got into codependency treatment center, a treatment 31 years ago and found this one definition of codependency where it says, when we allow people, places or things to become more important than ourselves, we lose our identity. And so it's easy to look at codependency with people. But then when you look at codependency for places, places could be our home, our jobs, or church could even be, we could become codependent of our church. But we also can be codependent of things, things like drugs, alcohol, food, sex, gambling, shopping, pornography, excessive exercise. All of these things when they become first and foremost in our life, led me to realize I was a diehard codependent who had lost my total identity. So when I look back upon this, um, the one thing that I can say I'm the most great, one of the things I was very grateful for when I got into recovery, because I'll be 68 years old shortly, was that I come from the old timers from AA. And being from the old timers of AA, I had the privilege of being able to go to the big book conferences with Joe and Charlie, the old timers of AA, who were from the first circles of AA with Bill W and Dr. Bob. And so I really got an understanding of really how the program was founded and started and truly learned how to work the steps effectively and wholly. And so from that, one of my favorite slogans was, look for the similarities 
instead of the differences in life. And so with that, I'd ask you to take a look at the similarities in my life and everyone here, instead of the differences to connect the dots of our stories with yours so you can find full transformation and healing. So where did this trauma and numbing start off? For me, it started off when my mom discovered she was pregnant with me after nine months, uh, when my sister was only nine months old. She was a borderline personality, complete narcissist, dysfunctional human being. And when she found out she was having me, she despised me instantaneously and told me that I was double ugly and there was nothing good about me and who would ever want to be with me. This resulted in me being a lost child who sat aimlessly, not non-verbally for years. My mom ended up marrying two other alcoholic sexual abusers. And through it all, we became Lockheed children and had to be, we were locked out of the house for hours at a time with no meals and no bathroom, bathroom privileges. So my life was really totally insane. There was lots of trauma and lots of abuse. And I was always looking for love. So at 14 years old, when the first boy paid attention to me, invited me to his house, I was so excited. And I went over there and I was really a quiet girl. And when I got to his house, he pushed me down and he raped me and told me he had made me a woman now to get up and walk home. Bleeding, scared and afraid, I told no one until I was in my 40s. What it left me with is no body image. And I started white cross amphetamines, which then led me to smoking pot, dropping acid, doing angel dust. And at 18 years old, leaving home, my first place that I ended up was in Chicago, where I got interviewed to be a Playboy bunny. But when I realized I had to wear high heels and nail polish, I turned down the job because my body image issues were so bad. So I hitchhiked around the United States, landing in San Diego. And when I got to San Diego, my first boyfriend was a surfer who was amazing, but he was also a big cocaine dealer. And before you knew it, I started to do my lines of cocaine. And through me never getting in touch with my trauma or my pain, I ended up getting hired at the body shop in San Diego, dancing naked. And I took the job, not even knowing this till years later, that one of the reasons I felt like I needed to do this is the the um, clientele weren't allowed to touch us, but we could dance on stage and be uh, sexually uh, predators to these men. And it gave me a power that made me just be, feel powerful. And so every night I would dance and I worked Wednesday through Thursday, Wednesday through Saturday nights. And on Saturday, when I'd get off of work, We'd go to my boyfriend's house and about 10 of us would get high from Saturday night until Tuesday around the clock, smoking uh, cigarettes, drinking lots of shots of tequila and lines of cocaine that were four times larger than you can imagine. And um, everybody had group sex and it was just total insanity. I had gotten down to 97 pounds, completely started forgetting where I was. I started having blackouts not remembering how to get home. Um, and then we started, and it's kind of funny guys, um, we started freebasing cocaine. And I, you know, I never knew what crack cocaine was because in the seventies we called it freebasing and freebasing is crack cocaine. And so we got into freebasing and I remember some guy pulling out a gun and saying, whoever 
then he was he wanted the last hit of cocaine or else he was going to kill all of us. And I realized how totally insane we were. And one night, my girlfriend, Michelle, who I was living with, who was also a cocaine dealer, um, said, hey, let's go to this church in San Diego where the pastor is a recovered heroin addict. So we snorted some coke and went to church. And when I went to church that night, the pastor kept saying that there was someone who wanted to come, needed to come forward and accept the Lord. So I did. And I completely got delivered from my cocaine addiction. I ended up moving back to Chicago. But nine months later, about nine months later, slipped one night with a guy I barely knew who tricked me into getting high, got high, had sex and got pregnant. So I decided I had already had two abortions, but now I was a Christian. So I decided I'm going to have this baby and my son, who's now 39 years old. That's why I can remember my recovery date because <laughs> it's the last time I used. Um, so I, I had my son. And when he was two years old, I remember getting really angry and hitting him so hard on his butt that left a handprint. I told a friend of mine what I had done. And he says, Jill, you're totally insane. You're a dry drunk. Get your ass, excuse my French, to an AA meeting. So I got to my first meeting, started going to recovery, working the steps, um, helping over 100 women in recovery. And working the steps, I finally was able to forgive my mother, who was my abuser, who physically, emotionally, and sexually abused me held her hand until she died. And now I just, you know, I'm, I'm now retired living in, in Branson, Missouri, and I'm doing conferences called Hope, Health and Healing in the World. And through it all, through it all, I've been able to help others with transformational healing of their burdens in generational wounds and helping people just to be delivered from the crap in their life so they can connect it all, the dots of their life to joy and story. And so I also have my podcast show called The Connection Show, connecting the dots of your life from your childhood to who you've evolved to be today. And so I just wanted to end with sharing with everyone that through everything you've been through, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, whatever you've gone through, that I really find for me, What's gotten me through it is hope in him, health of my body, so the Holy Spirit can live in me, and to keep working on healing my mind, body, and soul. I'm grateful to be here. Thanks so much for hearing my story. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, Jill, for sharing your story. Amazing. Our next speaker is Killian. Fluckinger. Now, Killian, we've been on a lot of platforms together. It's always nice to see you and hear your stories. Killian now joyfully spends every second of life committed to helping every soul discover and live into their own divine purpose. Killian's suicide by overdose and another apparent attempt crashing a car both came from the depths of decades of untreated depression. His life is, he is a, he is both a life coach and a business coach, but more important, He's the ultimate catalyst for personal transformation and helps people craft, create, and live their ultimate life. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our speaker, Killian Fleckinger. Welcome. Thank you. <clears throat> I, I'm over to the side on purpose because I want you to think about this picture right here. Hmm. 
there is no time in the journey of an addict where you don't feel alone. There is no time when you don't feel like nobody knows you, nobody cares, and nobody can help you. That's always what's on your heart. No matter how much you pretend, no matter, no matter how much you hide, it's always part of the fear. Now, we've heard a lot of stories, powerful stories, stories of moving from hopelessness to hopefulness. And I can share one too, but I want to make that part really short. Because the most important message that I have for each of you tonight is that no matter where you are right now, no matter how hopeless or worthless you feel or have felt, it's never too late. There is never a time when your God, your creator, is not anxiously wishing for your recovery, your effort, your heart, and your hope. I was raised in a two-parent home, and from external circumstances, things should have been okay. I had physical abuse that today would be felony child abuse, and it was in the name of religion. My mom thought that there was just one way to do things. And if you didn't do that, you got punished. And the punishment was uh, severe. I remember in high school getting dressed last in the locker room because I didn't want anyone to see I was black and blue. That left me feeling like I would never be good enough. And it made me afraid to talk to anyone. So I started experimenting with drugs at 13. Not because of peer pressure, but because I wanted to escape. And here, here is why this picture is so important. Wrong picture. This one, that one. That picture is so important is because my isolation meant that for 40 years, from 13 to 52, I never spoke to a soul about the depression and the struggle that was going on in my heart. I was convinced that I was alone. I was convinced that no one could help me and that I was fundamentally flawed. So that journey made me in and out of rehab. I was married and divorced three times with other failed relationships in between. I didn't know how to love. I didn't know how to be a partner. I had developed into a pathological liar as a kid to, to protect myself. But that meant I had no idea how to be a person. And that went on for 40 years. So finally, after 40 years of isolation, God stepped in and issued an invitation. And the, the invitation was kind of funny. I came home on a Friday night and was getting ready to go out and party for the weekend. And at that time, my addiction was $3,000 a week. And I was making enough money that that cocaine expense was not important. So high-functioning addict with a worthless life. I came home and I, 
I was getting ready to go out to party for the weekend. And suddenly I had this desire to turn on the television. Now that doesn't sound weird, except I didn't know how I had the biggest, coolest thing you could buy. Cause that's what you get when you make all that money, but I didn't watch it. So I didn't know how to turn it on. I was living alone, a single, but I had four teenage kids living with me. And I asked one of them how to turn it on. And my daughter turned it on through the remote control at me and walked out of the room. Okay, idiot. Here you go. So I, I turned the TV on and it went, it landed on a program I'd never heard of called intervention. And you know what that is. It's a reality TV show where people stage intervention to help their loved ones. And I watched for about 10 minutes and the protagonist was a, a high ranking executive with a cocaine problem. And I watched that for 10 minutes. I screw this. I'm not watching it. Turned it off and stomped around the house for about 10 minutes. Got ready to go out and I just had to turn the TV on again. So I did. And the program started over in the middle of the hour. And no, I don't have a DVR and no, it wasn't on the schedule and no, it can't do that. But it did. Scared me so bad. I watched. I figured I better watch this. So I did. And it went really badly. The guy got mad, yelled at his family, refused all the help and so forth. But what it did to me is it scared me bad enough that I didn't go out to party for the weekend and went to bed. And then I went to hell. What happened was the whole panorama of my life from young to now went before my eyes with all the pain that had both been inflicted on me and that I had inflicted on others. I woke up after all of that had gone before my eyes and I heard a voice say, it is enough. And I woke up and it was five o'clock Saturday afternoon. So I'd been somewhere for 18 hours. I realized I'd been invited to change. So I accepted that invitation. I threw away $1,000 worth of stash that I had, and I never touched it again. 3,000 bucks a week to zero in one day. That's how powerful the invitation was. But that was only part one. Part two was I had no way to deal with how I got there, which was that untreated depression. Two weeks later, my, my, my position meant I got a lot of free stuff. So I got two tickets to a concert that was really impressive. And I was single and I didn't want to waste the other concert ticket. Yo-Yo Ma was the artist. If you know classical music, you know who that is. If you don't, you don't. That's fine. But it was impressive. So I asked in the groups that I managed, who, who likes classical music? And some lady in one of the groups said, oh, I do. And I said, have you ever given you anything before? And she said, no. I said, okay, fine here. We'll see you there. So she met me at the concert and halfway through, and remember I'm two weeks stone cold sober. Halfway through, I had this feeling come over me that I recognized from two weeks before. And a voice said to me, you need to marry this woman. And I said, you're insane to myself, to God, you're insane. I'm not doing that. I've screwed that up three times, plus some other half-assed attempts. I'm not doing that. And afterwards, <clears throat> we're backstage, because of course, they're backstage passes, right? And the came, voice came back, said, <clears throat> comma, and you need to tell her tonight. And I argued again, but you don't win those arguments. So I did, and it went about like you thought, you know, you're insane. What are you talking about? And the crazy thing was, you know, she could have arrested me, harassment or all that kind of stuff. She didn't do any of that, but she told me I was crazy. And of course I was, but two, within two weeks, she had her own set of experiences and she resigned her very impressive job. I quit and walked away from millions of dollars of contracts and we walked off into the sunset together. And two weeks ago, we celebrated our 14th anniversary and her name is Joy.
You can't make this stuff up. Now, here's the reason I spent this time telling you this story. Because if God cares that much about a broken down, failed, addicted, not useless 52-year-old guy that's been on this roller coaster for 40 years, enough to do that and issue those invitations. Now, nothing was easy about it. I still had to go to find counselors and start doing things. But Joy, as an angel, was sent, like this picture, to help me with the depression and with the recovery and all of those things. So whoever your help is, God, a family member, a partner, a 12-step sponsor, God has not abandoned you and won't. So wherever you are in your recovery right now, your heart is calling you to do good. It doesn't matter how many times you've said no. It doesn't matter how many times you've stomped that feeling to the curb. You are a divine being. You have a gift that I need. You have talents that are crying to be used, not the way they've been used or ignored, but to serve and bless the lives of those around you. Your experience, however much you've suffered, like mine, will soften and give you, soften you and Soften your heart and give you greater empathy and power. Today, I only do one thing. From the time I open my eyes until I close them at night, I'm committed to help 10 million people discover, develop, and serve with their divine gifts. And it's that important to me that I can't talk about it without this kind of emotion. You are called and given the opportunity here now to make a choice to do different. I need you. Those around you need you. The world needs your light and your love. Thank you for this opportunity to love you and to pray for you and to lift and bless you the best that I can. Thank you, Kellen. Thank you for your transparency and your obedience. Thank you again for sharing your story. Our last speaker for the evening is Joanna. Family friends call her Joy Gamble, George. She's a neuroscientist, health scientist, behavioral scientist. She's just a brainiac, you guys. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our last speaker, Joanna Gamble-George. Gigi, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this awesome panel. The messages the panelists have given really have touched my heart and are so uplifting. My story is a little different. I'm not a recovering drug addict, but I am a witness to a very close relative that I adore, my aunt, who is no longer with us and suffered from drug addiction. Seeing the hardships she faced because of drug addiction, especially um, when I had to visit her as a little girl 
when she went to prison for her addiction. I decided that my career path would involve helping people overcome drug addiction. So I do that as a neuroscientist, where I study the importance of relationships during recovery from drug addiction. Today, I am going to provide some tips from what I have found through my studies to help you with your recovery process. So living with addiction while you are in recovery can create sometimes a lot of relationship challenges and can at times lead to damage to relationships you consider very important. Whether that is with your partner, your parents, your children, even your close friends, it is very important to reflect on your current relationships so you can identify people in your life that will help or maybe hinder your progress toward health and healing and recovery. Most people will experience deep regret, guilt, and shame related to the harm their use of drugs has caused people they care about. Many times wanting to fix important relationships immediately is based on a desire to alleviate the emotional pain of having hurt loved ones. But pain both emotionally and physically is an ineffable aspect of life. It is part of being who we are, which are human beings. The process of recovery requires learning how to accept and go through the pain that life brings you. Part of this process is accepting that repairing the damage your addiction has done to your relationships will only happen gradually over time, based on what you do rather than what you say. The saying is, actions speak louder than words. That is really especially accurate and true when it's related to your recovery process. As you continue to work on your recovery, your relationships are likely to improve over time. The best way to resolve relationship issues is through slow incremental change. You must also consider whether relationships that are not supportive of your priorities during your recovery process deserves your time and your energy. If something doesn't seem or feel right, it's just as important to pay attention to that gut feeling you may have and be able to communicate about it. Identifying and shedding unhealthy or toxic relationships, especially relationships with those former associates with whom you obtain your drugs or those with whom you use drugs with, is also an important part of the recovery process. There is a saying, if you hang around the barbershop long enough, you will end up getting a haircut. This means if you continue to hang out with the same people you use drugs with, you will eventually return to your previous habits. It is possible that during the development of your addiction, you form relationships with people who were codependent. This can be a spouse, a partner, a friend, or even an employer. What I mean by codependent is an individual who has come to believe that supporting and even enabling addictive behaviors is the only way to maintain your acceptance, your love, your security, and your approval. The danger involved in having a relationship with someone who exhibits excessive caregiving behavior is it can promote even greater dependency on your part. Codependence will allow you to define their reality. This can be really problematic because your reality was highly distorted when you were using drugs. Many times codependence will show enabling behavior 
by either directly or indirectly encouraging you to continue doing drugs. Enabling can take many forms. Enabling behavior can include making excuses, lying, and covering up for you. These types of behaviors are a way of protecting you from the consequences of your actions. In other cases, enabling can involve sometimes outright furnishing you with money for drugs. Of course, those friends with who supply you with drugs or who use drugs with you are your primary enablers. These two types of unhealthy behavior, codependency and enabling behavior can contribute to you deciding to go back to doing drugs. So it is very important to identify any damaging or unhealthy relationships in your life that could cause you to relapse. So there are a few ways to approach this. You can change the problem relationships, which means you can have a counselor or a supportive confidant help you work toward changing those relationships and your involvement in them. You might need to work on the relationship itself through counseling or focus on setting boundaries with that individual. You can also identify your supportive relationships, your counselor, a caseworker, or a supportive confidant can help you identify any positive, healthy family or social relationships that you have that can be a support to you in your recovery. If you have no relationships with people who use drugs, then you should begin to develop new relationships. Supportive relationships provide many benefits. The process of recovery from addiction is supported through relationships and your social networks. Finding new friends can really be at times challenging, but there are some things you can do to help. The key is to seek friendships that are supportive and focus on activities unrelated to drugs. So there are several places where you can meet new friends. You can attend support groups. Many times these new healthy relationships are formed through participation in mutual support groups. Also religious groups. You can find new relationships within religious organizations that can provide a safe place for you that you may be associated with or even think about recreational organizations. Another example is community organizations. You can even consider volunteering for different charitable groups or organizations in your local community. These groups are a great place to meet people who share the same concerns as you. And engaging in helping behaviors is a great way to stay busy and feel good about your actions. Another example, of a place to meet new friends is a hobby or a sports group. So taking part in a club devoted to your favorite sport or hobby is another great way to meet people who share your interests. It allows you to pursue something you're passionate about and bond with like-minded people. By establishing connections and bonding with other people, you can build your self-esteem and find a greater purpose. You can build on principles such as acceptance, compassion, respect, forgiveness, kindness, and even love. 
You may even discover that there are physical benefits, such as proving your heart health. By connecting with people, whether they're your family, friends, whether they are new friends or old friends, you can promote joy, freedom, and gratitude in life, which helps with your recovery process. Just remember that relationships are a necessary component of living one's best life. And you have what it takes to create those relationships that bring you joy and support and encourage your growth to a better life. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you, Joanna. So we're going to give a shout out to our sponsors, Ragne Sinekis. I know I've seen her earlier. I'm not sure she's here now, but she's the founder of World Women Conference and Awards, um, Entrepreneurs TV, Changemakers Coach, and Public Speaker. Michael D. Butler, he's the CEO of Beyond Publishing, book publisher, global speaker, and media coach. Daniel Gomez, he's a keynote speaker, corporate trainer, executive coach, confidence architect, and author. And of course, oh. myself, Lakeisha James. I am your master of ceremony. I really appreciate you guys being transparent and showing you guys and showing you and sharing your story. Next, we're going to have a question and answer session, and that's going to be done by Joe Lisa. And after that, we'll have closing remarks by our visionary, Gigi Sabat, and we'll lead with prayer. And that'll be it. The event will be over after prayer. Joe Lisa's here, and she'll be asking the questions. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jolisa, and we have a few questions from the audience that I will be asking. Our first question is for the keynote speaker, Misty Lane. Um, considering you are in the medical field and around drugs, do you feel tempted to start again? Oh, for me, it's an absolute no. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate um, the day that I had the wreck and killed someone. I know that God spared my life for a reason, and I decided it wasn't to lay down and, and give up on life. It was to step up and speak out and lead by example. So for me, I'm on God's journey right now, and um, he keeps me on the right path. So for me, that's a no. Okay. Our next question is for Chris Salem. What is the 12-step program for those of us who don't know? Sorry, but I was just out with my family. Can you repeat the question? What is the 12-step program for those of us who don't know? The 12-step program is a, a program that is obviously, it's derived from, uh, you know, the Bible, but it, it really talks about the different steps of learning how to really surrender and learning how to, again, surrender the control that you do not have control over and focusing on you know, the things that you can. So there, there are several steps, but it, what's important with the 12 step program, it impacts every aspect of your life. You know, everything that you do with your communication to yourself and other people, your behavior, your attitude, your emotions, and, and the action that you take. See, the reality is like in anything, you know, your higher power is always there with you, but you have to do your part. And the 12 step program provides the steps and the guides allow you to do that and learning to surrender to the control you can't control so you can focus on the things you can and again that's that communication with yourself your behavior your attitude your emotions course of action when i was able to do that 22 three years ago 
that was a defining moment for me. It didn't happen overnight. It took some time, about three, four years over that process. But when I was able to completely surrender and be transparent and vulnerable, and when I say vulnerable and transparent, I mean that I was an open book and I was not only that to other people, but I had to most importantly do that to myself. That's when the change started to happen. Things were starting to happen for me, not to me. So I'll say that again. Things that were hap- that happened to me happened for me, not to me. To me is the victim. It's the excuses. It's, it's the failure to accept the responsibility of, of what your part is in it. When it happens for you, it means that it's shaping you up to, beca- to be to become something that you can, from gratitude, really begin to use it in a positive way that can impact you, not only your life, but others around you. So it changed my whole way of being to learn that when thing, when you go through adversity and setbacks in life, there are blessings and opportunities disguised that it's happening for you. And that's where change truly happens. And when you can be the example for your children, your spouse, your family, miraculous things can happen in time. You can't control their, but you can empower them to do for themselves. Amen. Hopefully that answers the question. Our next question is for Jill, Misty, and Reggie. So Jill, I'll ask you first. Does being sexually assaulted cause you to turn to drugs? Yeah, for for me, I would answer that um, as a yes. For me, my really first introduction to drug abuse started right after my date rape at 14 years old. Um, you know, I, at that time, I was just a really lost, quiet little girl. And I really wanted someone to love me. And so when the first boy um, tried to take, rip my soul away, because I, I believe sexual abuse is someone taking, trying to take your soul from you. And so when he ripped my soul away and my virginity from me, um, and I walked home crying and felt like I had no one I could talk to and confide in. Um, and I isolated and would sit on my couch with my legs up and trying to, you know, hide my private parts. My mom would pull my legs down, not knowing I was abused and say, would you sit with like a lady? And so the more out of control I felt and the more lost I felt and the more I didn't have my soul or my body felt like my image was gone. Um, I just started using amphetamines mainly so that I wouldn't develop because the white cross speed would take away my appetite, which turned me into an anorexic and I didn't eat. And so I thought the more I didn't eat, I could wear flannel shirts and shit kicker boots and blue jeans and I could hide and no one would notice me. So that's where it really began. And then it just permeated from there. And of course, you know, not only was I date rape, but I started getting groomed by my stepfathers who began, you know, touching me inappropriately. And when my mom and my stepfather would have fights, my mom would come into my bedroom and sleep with me in my twin bed naked. And it was horrific. And so no matter which way I turned, the abuse was everywhere. And so I just kept wanting to numb out. So again, it started with amphetamines. Then it went into acid and peyote and angel dust and everything I could possibly do to numb out. Okay, Misty, same question. Does being sexually assaulted cause you to turn to drugs? 
Um, I, I wouldn't say it caused me to turn to drugs. Um, for me, the first sexual assault, I had suppressed that memory out of self-preservation. I didn't even realize I had been sexually assaulted till I was in my first rehab years and years and years later. Um, using that writing I mentioned during my keynote speech as therapy, it came out. What it did was it, I was in third grade when the assault happened and I suppressed the pain. Um, but all those years leading up to that first line of cocaine I had done, it was stuffing with, with food. It was stuffing down with overachieving perfectionism. Growing up in the Texas beauty pageant system, I was always achieving, you know, always reaching to be the best at everything, always pushing myself to every limit and the perfectionism piece of it. So it definitely fueled um, these behaviors along the way. Um, once I realized what had happened, you know, I could attribute some of that, uh, like Jill mentioned, wanting to numb out, I could attribute some of that towards that. But there were many other factors um, in my life I had pain over as well that, that I was using the drug for. Um, but one step further than that is during my addiction with um, the life on the streets, as you would, um, comes all those things that come with that life, you know, the prostitution, the, the being, you know, raped when, you know, it's one thing to prostitute and say, Hey, I'm willing, you pay me and I'll give you this service. But for people to just take it from you, you know, that's a whole nother thing. And, and I was raped multiple times, held at gunpoint multiple times. So at that point in my life, when I was already in the addiction and the sexual assault was happening, the drug kept me going because I didn't have to face the pain. I didn't have to face the shame of it. I didn't have to admit that my actions were maybe putting me in these places and causing this. So um, I would, so to answer your question, it wasn't the direct reason, but it definitely attributed to the pain I was trying to cover. Okay. And Reggie, does being sexually assaulted cause you to turn to drugs? Well, mine has a little twist. I wouldn't exactly call it sexually assaulted, but at the age of 16, when I first started using drugs, uh, I was introduced to drugs by older women and the desire for sex and for women and the things that they um, introduced me to sexually at a young age caused me to want to come back for more and more, which caused me to use drugs more and more because those type of women were the ones that, you know, went the extra mile, as, as you would say, uh, in the streets, street life, because they knew I had money and I had access to drugs and I had the drugs. So in, in a way, it was a, a, a sexual um predatory type of thing because the women were older and and I was between 16 and 18 years old but as a result like I said of of, of the sexual contact and the things the nature of the things it did cause me to to want to wanna use more and continue to use to keep these type of women around me uh for that purpose okay our next question is for Ben Swicegood did your faith play a role in your recovery Absolutely. I, I didn't find God until I was 30 years old in a jail cell flat on my back. I never went to church growing up. Nobody ever told me about what God did. Nobody ever took me to Sunday school. I didn't go to Bible, um, you know, Bible camp or anything. So my first encounter was um, definitely in that jail cell. And I credited a lot to my mom when my, when my mom, uh, 
was praying for her son and what she did for many, many years. She actually retired early, went into full-time ministry and started serving, helping other people that were homeless or dealing with drug, with drug addictions. And at that time, she didn't even know where I was. Um, but she trusted and believed that if she took care of God's business, God would take care of hers. And I believe God finally found me and he put me in a place where I couldn't get out. He put me in a place where I couldn't go do what Ben wanted to do. He put me in a place where he could speak to me. And he put me in a place where my life was changed. And it was when I looked up, I was able to get up out of that addiction. And I believe who the sun sets free is free indeed. Once I surrendered to him, it was done. No more going back. Okay. Our next question is for Dan Warren. We have two questions, actually. Uh, how did you shift your mindset from a negative one to a positive one? Great question. I began to focus on different things. You know, I, I came to the realization that <clears throat> I heard enough rap songs. I have watched enough rap videos. So I began to focus on podcasts that, that um, promoted growth, motivational videos, and also began to change my circle of friends. You know, you can't, you can't plant, you, you know, you, you can't grow in old soil. So if you want new fruit, you have to plant yourself in new soil. So that's how I've changed my mindset. Okay, and the next question is, Metaphorically, would you ever go back into those clothes that you burnt? Why or why not? <laughs> no, great question. You know, I had this conversation with a friend of mine the other day. We was talking about our growth. You know, growth mindset is, is everything. And I have fought too hard to get to where I am. You know, there's an old gospel song that says, you might not be where you want to be, but thank God you're not where you used to be. So I never want to go back there again. And God didn't save me to go back there again. God saved me to pure hope, inspiration, encouragement, and motivation to anybody and everybody that I can. Thank you for the question. Okay, our next question is for Jamie Whitfield. So you've been in recovery for 15 months. How are you handling your recovery every day? Are some days harder than most? Um, well, first of all, I take it day by day. Uh, sometimes uh, it's a struggle and you have to take it minute by minute. And sometimes you have to even break that minute down and go second by second. Um, this journey is not easy and you have to put in the work though, but it is so, it is worth it. If you work it, you're worth it. And, you know, it's just, it's amazing. Um, I just know that I, like I said, I take it day by day, sometimes minute by minute. There has been a time or two um that I, I struggled, but I utilize the tools that I've been given and that's pick up my phone and call my support group, call my sponsor. First and foremost, I call out to God and say help when I pray. And, and I don't even hesitate to do that. And so with the support group and, and the, the fellowship that I, I attend, the, the NA program, uh, I'm never alone. And, and I'm not saying that everything is perfect, but I, I live a, a good different life now. Okay, and we have another question for you. Um, how did you come up with the saying, hope after dope? Um, it's just been in the rooms of, uh, you know, the 12-step program that I go, th I go to and attend. 
Um, it's just one of them sayings that the, I even have a, on my YouTube channel, Recovery Matters. I, I did a segment um, about hope after dope, having that hope. When you don't have any hope, you don't have anything. And when you don't have God, you have nothing. And so, um, you know, once I, I put them two back in my life, I have everything. And I tell people I might not have a dollar in my pocket, but spiritually I'm rich. So there goes. That's where that hope comes from. <laughs> okay. Our next question is for Mark Pooler. Did being bullied growing up cause you to use drugs? Mark's not here. Oh, okay. Can somebody else take that question in regards to being bullied? Helen Bookkeeper. Did I unmute? Yes, I'm unmuted. I was bullied a lot. I was the guy that had the bad glasses and pictures weird and wore bad clothes and last to pick and all the stuff, you know, and was bullied a lot. got beat up after school on the way home and everything else. It certainly contributed to my desire to escape. And I used to go steal stuff so I could give it to my friends so they would like me that weren't friends. And so using, using was a way to be cool. So absolutely feeling bullied, left out, shut down, uh, made me turn to want to turn to uh, escape and use, get it, get involved in drugs. So it certainly did for me. Okay. Our next question is for Reggie D. Um, what made you homeless and what steps did you take to put a roof over your head? Um, what made me homeless actually was, hmm, I hadn't, I, I moved away from my hometown, non-familiar territory, basically where my parents were. Um, I ended up getting my own apartment and along with my own apartment, I was still, you know, using drugs. I'd met new drug using friends, uh, near me and I eventually lost, the. Uh, lost the apartment and I was like jumping from house to house in the apartment complex that I was in and not telling my parents what was going on uh, because that's the environment that I actually wanted to be in at that time. And um, it's funny because I, I laugh at this situation. <laughs> at that particular time, I was early 20s. I had gotten down to about 115, 120 pounds. Um, had no clothes. I was barely eating. I preferred drugs over food at the time. And I had a rental car and I was pulled over in the town that I was living in, uh, Pontiac, Michigan. And the police told me that I had a warrant back in my hometown for delivery of a controlled substance. I had been gone from my hometown for years and it actually wasn't me that did it. And I was actually convicted of this crime and sentenced to five years for something that I can say now, 20 years later, I wasn't there. That was the best thing that God could have done. I thank him for that. I thank the judge and the prosecutor for that as well, because that saved me. And uh, that, that actually uh, was my homeless time at that point. Uh, what was the second part of that question? Um, what steps did you take to put a roof over your head? <laughs> I didn't, the state did. I went to prison <clears throat> and from that point and, and from prison, I got married and, you know, and, and while I was in prison, actually, I got married and started living a better life when I got out. And it was a back and forth thing with the drugs uh, while I was out. But, you know, I had a lot more stability because I had someone else that was there to pick up the slack every time I fell off. And they made sure that we, you know, we had everything that we need, even when I couldn't provide. Okay, we actually have three more questions for you. Um, what made you become a business owner? 
Um, I'm an only child. Uh, I don't like, I still don't like to follow the rules to this day. I, I my, my motto is, and I joke around a lot with this, I make the rules. Um, you know, it's being an only child type of thing. You know, what I say goes, um, you know, I stomp my feet and, 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 and poke my lips out and I get my way. It's the same way with business. You know, I don't want to follow anyone else's rules. And if you don't want to follow rules, you create the business, you create your own lane. And that's pretty much what I did. Uh, I, I'm a thinker. Uh, not to talk about my business too much, but I have a I have a trucking company, a gourmet sauce. I have a line of potato chips that's uh, releasing February six, I think. Uh, I have a fruit snack that's releasing in in the spring. I have a a seasoning that I'm releasing tonight. I just play in business a lot. I own a collection agency, a nail salon, nightclubs. I, I just like to start businesses and start business ventures and just watch them flourish. That's what makes me happy. I joke around sometimes and tell people that I have ADHD because I, I can't, I probably do have it, but I, I can't focus on one thing. I have to have several things going at one time. And that's probably what keeps me alive and keeps me away from the drugs as well. Because every time, you know, I wake up and I'm open my eyes, I got something new on my mind and it's not getting high anymore. Okay. Um, does God have a role in your recovery? He definitely does. I've been to rehab three times maybe four, they did absolutely nothing. I mean, everybody to each his own, you know, I'm not knocking recovery at all, but it, it did absolutely nothing for me. You know, I went in, I, I, I memorized the steps, memorized the, the NA book. Uh, you know, I went to meetings every day. I, I did the whole shebang and it did nothing for me. So I, I you know, I, I play God. I, I went to church, you know, I, I believe in God. I pray to God to keep that devil off my back. Okay. Um, do you believe the saying you are who you so surround yourself with? Why or why not? You definitely are. I tell people all the time, uh, you surround yourself by other businessmen, other entrepreneurs, and you network with people at the top. Um, you, you end up being one of them. You know, mom always said as, as a youngster, if you hang with five broke people, eventually you become the six. You know, we hear that all the time in our, in, in our households. And that's the same way with business. Okay. Our next question is for Jill Reynolds. Did you have support from family and friends during your recovery? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. no, not family and friends. Um, I didn't, when I got into recovery, I absolutely know, knew no one else who was in recovery. So um, when I got clean and sober in San Diego, I don't think I knew one person who was clean and sober. And when I moved back to Chicago, no, I didn't. None of my real, my every, well, my sister wasn't an addict, but my brother was. And my mother just continued to be dysfunctional for years till she died. So I really didn't have that. And um, until I got to recovery, the people who supported me were, were 12 step recovery people. Cause I really, and church. If I had anybody, it would have been started having a support group by going to Bible studies. And then I had some support there. But by the time I got to church, I had already gotten off of cocaine. Um, so I would say no. The person who helped me only was really God. I would say God and the 12-step recovery program is what helped me. Okay. Our next two questions are for Kellen Flukiger. Through the ages of 30 to 52 years old, you were convinced you were alone. Why? 
I couldn't, I didn't believe that I could talk to anyone 13 to 52. So those 40 years, I never spoke with anyone about depression. I never talked to anyone about what was going on. I had this image that I was supposed to provide and do all this stuff. And if I didn't, it was my fault because I was bad and something was wrong with me. And so I, there were people that I, I could, and I know now I could have talked to, but at the time I didn't. And the other thing was my family that should have been there. If you say family do, does that sort of stuff, disowned me kind of the first time I got divorced of three times, that was awful. You get divorced and you suck. So I didn't have any uh, support from my mom or my dad or my brothers and sisters. They all thought I was a lost cause and that disappeared. So I didn't have anyone to talk to in my mind. I could have found people, but I didn't. Okay. Our next question for you is that you mentioned you were invited to change. How did you know so others can be aware that they too can change? Well, I called that an invitation because my experience has been that everything that God does for us is by way of invitation. Like he doesn't come down and force us, you know, whether you wake up in a jail cell or whether you wake up after 18 hours of being somewhere else, like I did, I just had this invitation feeling. And so I guess the answer to your question is how do you know, you know, because you have an urge to do something different whether you call it hitting rock bottom like they do in 12 step or whether you simply you, you have this feeling there is something better for me. I'm done with this, this process. And you have this urge that you haven't felt before or that it's stronger in some way to go do something different, strong enough for me that I got up through a whole bunch of stuff and started thinking about quitting the whole career I'd been in for 30 years. And it was that strong of an invitation. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this mainly because look, look what I've done. I've been in charge for these decades and it's a disaster. So I'm doing something new. And this is the invitation to, to take that step. Is that a good enough answer? Yes. Yay. <laughs> Okay, our next two questions are for Stephen Anthony King. So the first question is, what is what is the day you decided not to use drugs anymore? It was January 3rd, 1998. I was in a hotel room, alone, paranoid, thinking that the cops and the stick-up kids were at the door. And um, I'll never forget, my, my daughter, uh, was a baby and um, her mother and I were, were separated. So it was my weekend with her. And, um, you know, I was saying to myself all night I was, as, I was, as I was getting high, I'm not gonna be able to deal with my daughter when she wakes up. So uh, in the middle of the night, I wrapped my, my daughter up. I, uh, I took her to her mom's house and I went to a hotel and proceeded to, uh, to get high and use until I had no more. And I'll never forget, I was standing in front of the mirror and I was, <clears throat> you know, I had this stone look on my face, but inside I was crying. Inside I was screaming, you know, but on the outside, it was just this stone look. And uh, that was the last day that I used. It was January 3rd, uh, 1998. Okay. 
My next question for you is what would you tell young boys and girls who turn to drugs? I'm sorry, can you repeat that, sweetheart? What would you tell young boys and girls who turn to drugs? Oh, I would tell them to get off as quickly as they can. <laughs> or uh, if, if you're too far gone, because, you know, growing up, at least for me, uh, before cocaine, marijuana was cool. You were hip, you were accepted. Uh, seek help from, from somewhere. Uh, get some mentorship, whether it's through, you know, if you don't have a father figure or a positive male role model in your life, or just a role model in your life, you know, go to a boys and girls club, maybe, maybe the church, the pastor, or maybe even a teacher in school, uh, a boxing coach, someone uh, that's older, that's doing something positive that, that you, can, you can share what you're going through with. There's somebody that you're going to have to trust, okay? Um, because none of us here have done this alone. None of us have gotten clean on our own. We had to seek help from somewhere. Um, that would be my answer. <clears throat> okay, next question is for Sparkle Lindsay. How are, how's your recovery and what steps are you taking? Uh, well, my recovery, I'm two years and eight months sober. So I'm about three months uh, away from three years, which is the, the end of early recovery. So um, I am so blessed to be where I'm at. Um, but my steps um, go along the lines of actually being a recovery coach and training recovery coaches. Uh, one of the biggest portions to my growth came from me having what, well, the next book that I'll be having coming out was The Legs to My Table, which involved a sponsor. It also involves a therapist, along with a mentor, and also taking on some other multiple pathways to recovery to not just make it a not using thing anymore, but an entire mind, body, and spirit living thing for the rest of my life. And so for me, it's been really good to watch and speak with my sponsor at times and get the spiritual wellness piece, you know, that serenity prayer piece, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference when it's not mine to hold. And so when I started practicing these things and noticing these things, I knew that having a recovery coach and having a mentor, and now being able to change those legs to my table consistently as I consistently keep moving in my career, in my life, in my journey, um, I can mix and match those legs to my table, which now creates that village. And so for me, that is where this freaking uh, three, three years, I can't wait. But right now, living in the now and in the present, and being in the moment with my life and where I'm at, taking it one step at a time is all I need. And I'm, I'm very blessed to do so. So my recovery is, is rocking and rolling right now. <laughs> okay, considering that some athletes use drugs, you being an athlete, did that ever cause you to use drugs? Oh, man, yes. Um, you know, well, I would say this. Now that I look back at it, being a athlete and also reteaching myself to walk uh, when I was in a wheelchair. Um, a bit, can you guys hear that? Hear me okay? 
Yes, ma'am. Um, when I was in a wheelchair, um, I had to reteach myself to walk and play another two years of college ball. Uh, but one of the biggest pieces I can say is the pressure and the stresses that we hold on to. As an athlete, we have what we call that festered anxiety. And although we, we think that we're, you know, that's that nervous feeling when you're about to go and do the tip off and you have all of that, you don't ever really know that you're still festering that or holding on to it. And so a lot of that, I never knew where to put it. And so as I got older, I noticed that that wasn't nervousness, that was actually anxiety. And so as I got going, just being that captain, being that leader, being that person that people always looked up to, I felt like I could never mess up. I felt like I needed to, you know, be that end all be all. People started to call me the fixer. I was just playing these roles that people were putting me into. And that was when I knew I finally did not know myself. And so when I found out that I didn't know myself, I realized I had to do it for me. And I had to stop trying to be everybody's end all be all. I had to stop being always the captain, always the fixer, because I was sacrificing myself and taking care of everybody else but me. So I was running out of gas. And as leaders, as healers, okay, as athletes, we think that being that all the time is strong, but it's okay for us to ask for help and for us to be vulnerable as well. And for us to say, I need some help too. It makes us stronger knowing that and it builds character as we continue moving forward. So if I would have been able to do what I'm doing now while I was playing and be able to surrender and say I needed help, when I was going through depression and I was sad and I didn't feel like I had to do it all on my own, it may have changed some things for me and it may have been a little bit of a different road for me. So yes, it is important to ask for that help no matter who you are or what leader you are. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, our next question is for Joanna. What would you tell someone who is ready to give up on their recovery with drug addiction? I will tell them to not give up. It's a very long process uh, where you just have to really evaluate your relationships with others, your own values, and think about the things that you're going through and just know that there's always light at the end of the tunnel. We all have different paths and different life experiences. You always just got to keep pushing forward. Know that things will get better as long as you just keep a positive mindset, things will be hard, but know that you will get through it. So the thing is to just never give up, keep pushing forward no matter what. Okay, thank you. These next two questions are for anyone who wants to answer, you could raise your hand. The first question is, why do people use drugs knowing they will cause harm to themselves and others around them? Kellen Flukiger. Kellen? Uh, I can't speak for anybody else, but you know that it's going to, uh, somebody said earlier, the 12-step thing, it only goes three places, you know, prison, death, or institutions. And you know it's going to hurt everybody around you. And there are two things that made me do it. Number one, the pain of the moment is so great, I don't care what it causes. That, that happens, you get, excuse me. Get to where you feel in so much pain, you don't care how much you hurt everybody else. 
it's bad reasoning and it's not right that you feel that way. <clears throat> the second, the second thing is you start feeling like you're worthy of death. At least I did. And so what I was hoping is that the drugs and attempted suicide through drug overdose and stuff would kill me. And then all those people that hated me and said I was the root of the problem, they would be right and I could be gone. So even though I know it's hurting people around me, you either don't care or you want to die. Okay. And Sparkle Lindsay, I see you raised your hand. Did you want to answer that question as well? Uh, yeah. I would say that um, just recently um, for me, I noticed that a lot of my subconscious mind has been playing with my obsessions through depression and different things. And it holds on to that stuff. And so I didn't realize how much of the subconscious mind I was in, in not knowing what I was doing when I was using. But I do know that even now, the cravings for alcohol and addiction for me are always there. And they're there because my subconscious wants to hold on to anything that creates chaos for me. And so I'm, I'm aware of it. You know, a big portion of what Kellen was saying is that um, there's points where I feel, especially with my depression, that I am screaming in a room full of people and I am extremely, extremely overwhelmed. And I'm saying I need help. And the majority of the people, I feel like they don't even hear me. And that was a portion of what I was feeling as I was using. I felt as if I was literally just sinking. And because I was so strong, everybody just thought I could handle it. And it almost took my life. And so it's not that we choose to do these things. Our subconscious mind, us being human, these things happen. And before you know it, things start piling up and piling up and your bills pile up, money piles up. And before you know it, you feel like, why am I even here? I'm, I don't have the capacity to hold on to it. You know, and that's when all of a sudden you hope and we pray, we hope for everyone who's going through this, that they can surrender and say, I can't do this by myself. I need help. And that that's really how it is. It's like you're going down this rabbit hole and there's no, you're trying to hold on and there's nothing to hold on to. Um, and so each that's for my me as you know, individually. But I do know it's not an easy hole to crawl out of. And when you finally have some hands to pull you out, it's a blessing. Thank you. Thank you. OK, our next question again is for anyone. Um, what advice would you give to your past self? I'll take that. Misty and Joe. Okay, Joe. You can... I... Say it again. Misty, go ahead and then Jill, yeah. please. Okay. Definitely would tell myself to slow down and respect my moment of choice. Think the moment of choice through. And because looking back now, I realize those choices are our lifetime of decisions and they create or make or break us. So, um, you know, at 32 years old, a mother of two in medical school, I did not think about the longevity um, effect of doing that first line of cocaine. And um, that would be my advice is respect your moments of choice. Respect your moments of choice. Very powerful. If you're listening to this message today, I know a lot of folks have joined us online. Please write that down. 
Can you repeat that one more time for us, Misty? Yes, respect your moments of choice. They become your lifetime of decisions. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Jill? Yeah, uh, the first, when you said that, the first thing that came to my mind is I love healing through music. Music just takes my soul. And I love Mercy Me, and they have a song called Dare Younger Me, and I love it. And so my, my thing to my past would be, Dare Younger Me, it's not your fault. You were never meant to carry this beyond the cross. You are holy. You are righteous. You are one of the redeemed. Set apart a brand new heart. You are free indeed. Every mountain, every valley, through each heartache you will see, every moment brings you closer to who you were meant to be, dear younger me. And so for me, I would talk to my younger self and just tell me how beautiful, divine I am and that I am created in the image of God and I'm worthy and I'm loved and I, there's a reason I'm here. So that's what I'd say to my past. Thank you. Okay, and our last question is actually for everyone. Um, She's going to go around the room and ask yes. everyone. Last question. So, Joanna, if you could answer first, um, what inspired you to want to educate people in your situation? I think having a close relative um, that I really loved, and she recently passed last year um, due to COVID-19, and she also suffered from drug addiction. And I think as a little girl, it was just very hard seeing her um, having to go to prison and we would only get to visit her at times and all the other things that she just went through with the struggle. Um, and I think of all my family members, she was the only person that understood me and I really miss her. So I think that's the thing that's pushed me to become a neuroscientist and to really try to help other people in their process. Cause I really understand the importance of having those relationships with loved ones and maintaining them and helping people with their struggles. Cause we all have struggles, but you know, we can definitely get through them when we have assistance and help and support and love from others. Okay, Joe, what inspired you to wanna to educate people on your situation? Well, I think probably the first thing I'd say is all the loss I've had. Um, the first remembrance of loss was my brother-in-law, 36 years old, fell over dead of cirrhosis of the liver and drug addiction. My best friend from high school committed suicide uh, while she was on prescription drugs. Um, my girl, best friend, Kathy, my first roommate out of uh, when I moved away from home, uh, was a heroin addict and anorexic, and she died at 40 when her heart stopped. And the girl I talked about who took me to church that day when was my, that was a drug dealer, was shot and murdered by her drug connection. And so I've just had so much loss in my life from those that I've loved. And I just feel great, uh, grateful to God that I'm here because I should be dead. And so I just feel that if there's anybody out there that I can help, to prevent them from suicide or death or hopelessness, you know, that my purpose here on life is to bring hope, health and healing to the world. And I'll do whatever it takes to, you know, just carry that message to those who still suffer. Okay, Ben Slicegood, what inspired you to wanna to educate people on your situation? Who, which, who's, who's the question go to? Ben Swicegood. Oh, Ben. Sorry, I didn't. I couldn't hear you. What was the question? 
um, what inspired you to want to educate people in your situation? Because I feel like if I went through everything I went through and didn't tell anybody about it and didn't use it to help others, then it would be all for nothing. So I want to use what I went through because maybe that can change someone's life, save someone's life or get somebody out of a situation they're in. So I feel like it's our, all of our duties that have overcome anything to share our story. I'm big on sharing stories and telling people, you know, somebody mentioned earlier being authentic and real. We should all be authentic, real and share our story and help other people help other humans. Um, I feel like that's what we're all called to do. So that's why I love this panel and I love what we did tonight. We were able to educate people, um, on things that we've discovered and figured out of how to overcome drug addiction. What a great thing that is. Okay, Kellen Flukiger, what inspired you to, to wanna educate people on your situation? I didn't want anyone else to live alone. Isolated, alone, feeling like there was not only no one to talk to, but no one that cared. And so anyone, anywhere, at any time that I can talk to and help them understand, number one, they're not alone, and two, there is a way forward, I'm all in. Chris Salem, what inspired you to want to educate people in your situation? You know, this, this, uh, this transformation that I went through, you know, almost 23 years ago now, it shows up in every aspect of not only the personal side, but also in the business side. I'm also a business executive coach and I, and I, you know, do, I, I share this even with when I'm working with, uh, you know, workplace uh, teams and building their culture, it, it comes down to the, you know, this, this statement I'm going to give everyone, if you want to write this down, you're more than welcome to it's give without expectation receive without resistance. I've been living from that statement for almost 23 years. And what that is, is that I look at everything that I went through, all the hardship, all the struggle, and I look at it today as a blessing. I can, I can say, honestly say over 23 years ago, I didn't see it that way because I didn't understand it. I was miserable and I, and I didn't want to live this way anymore. But I look at it as a, a, a blessing because I wouldn't be here today to be the example. I am committed each and every day to help one human being each day, if not more, by being the example and resource of sharing from my experience to give without expectation, to receive without resistance. That means sharing this story and allowing someone to draw their own conclusion, giving something from a place of empathy and kindness, not pleasing and enabling, that's, that's codependency, that I, I share it and I be a resource for others to do for themselves. Because when people, when if you can inspire one human being to take ownership over their lives, no matter what cards have been dealt to them beyond their control, they can take what they can control and decide to make those changes from when to adapt and become, be to become and do and have more in their lives. Because when you can impact one human being to do the same for another and another, you create more interdependency in the world for the better. And that is my life mission, both in personal life in, and in business. And that is something I will carry to the day I, I leave this planet is give without expectation, receive without resistance. You have to fill your cup in order to repeat the process of giving, you know, what you have. 
Jamie, what inspired you to want to educate people on your situation? What inspired me? Um, just because I, through the 12 step program that I choose to work, uh, in order for me to keep what I have, I have to give it away and give it to others. And I know for me, uh, going through my my journey and my trials and tribulations, um, you know, I just I want to know I want to let the the addict that's still suffering or that one is you know because we learn many things no matter how long we have clean we learn new things like maybe I gave somebody that had. 30 years clean today, something, you know, they, we learn from each other and, and I don't want and shame on me for not being of service. If I don't share my story, my experience, strength and hope with others. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's being selfish and we, we don't practice selfish spiritual principles. We, we practice selfless. And, and so giving back is totally, um, you know, why I, I do what I do and why I go on, you know, my, my television station here and, and sh you know, just share the message of, of hope because that's, that's what it boils down to, hope. You know, uh, I, I was that hopeless dope addict down on the streets and, and I no longer am. And I just want to share that we do recover. Okay. Uh, Misty Lane, what inspired you to want to educate people on your situation? Well, this is a really big one for me. Um, what I shared with you during my talk was that on September 18, 2007, I killed someone. And I also shared with you that over the next seven months, I spent time writing my story. What I didn't share with you is that um, when I got out of prison, Fast forward eight years later, I had never done anything with that story. I'd never done anything with that book. Um, the same exact day, September 18th, my grandbaby, my very first grandbaby was born and she got stuck in the birth canal. She was a full-term baby, perfectly healthy and fine. Got stuck in the birth canal, came out completely blue, blind, deaf, couldn't suck, couldn't cry, couldn't even hold her own body temperature. And I actually let the devil convince me that it was my fault. Um, it's really hard not to believe. I mean, how can, how can those dates just be a coincidence, September 18th, right? Um, so I really internalized it and really believed that was my punishment. And it was that day that I, I came to terms with understanding that God doesn't love that way, number one. And number two, that I realized that I had been through something horrific, but I was still standing. I had been through something so helpless and so hopeless, but yet I was still standing. And even with Eliana, my grandbaby, who has now passed on, she passed away at four. Um, I realized that God saved me for a reason and it wasn't to be silent. Um, I had to find that there is a silver lining in every situation and Eliana helped me see that. And that's when I decided that it was time to release that book, that, that book I had written in, in prison was full of anger and blame. And I completely, like we've talked on the summit tonight about changing your mindset. I can, I rewrote the entire book around forgiveness and accountability. It changed my life. And that's the day I decided that I'm no longer on my mission. It's no longer about me. It's now about God and his mission. 
And it was so hard for me to understand when I would get on the stage and speak the very first few times, I was so afraid of the judgment, so afraid of what people would think about me because here I was, you know, a crack addict, I'd had abortions, I'd prostituted and, you know, killed someone and did all these horrible things. And I was so afraid about what are they going to say about me? What are they going to think about me? And it took a long time for me to understand that it wasn't about me anymore. And to really understand what that meant was that it's about the person that needs to hear the message. And it's about me being transparent so that like Kellen said, the person out there knows they're not alone and they can relate to you and understand you. So for me, um, man, it, it was that day my grandbaby was born and, and, and I blame myself for all her problems that made me realize that I had to step up and speak out. Okay. And Reggie D, what inspired you to want to educate people on your situation? Can you hear me now? Yes. <clears throat> my inspiration to make me want to educate people was just the mere fact of watching my growth and watching how I pull myself out. Um, with little no help besides, you know, God, of course. And, and, and the fact that I come from the inner city, uh, from an impoverished community, and there are so many in the same predicament that I was once in, and I know that, that I can help them. I know that, that by them hearing my story and, and growing uh, a million dollar company and, and during COVID, you know, and overcoming addiction and overcoming being a prison twice. And, you know, if people hear what I've gone through, uh, it, it's hope for them. You know, they, they feel there's a lot of hope for them. You know, I, I don't buy the story of uh, I can't get a job because of my felony convictions. You know, I, I, and I tell them that's, you know, that's BS where we're not going to we're not going to feed into that. There are jobs out here. There are opportunities out here. And if there are not opportunities out here, you make your own. You always make your own lane. You know, you be your own boss. You control your own destiny. Uh, uh, it's a saying in the trucking industry, you're the captain of your own ship. And I, and I live by that. You know, you, you create whatever you want to create. You create your own lane. There's a supply and demand out here for everything. I mean, everything. And if people would take the same uh, mentality that they have in the street and convert it to business, it works just about the same way, just in, in a legal aspect. You just got to do it straight on a straight and narrow. So, you know, my motivation to educate people is, is, is me and where I came from and showing them that it can be done. And it doesn't take a lot to do it. It just takes perseverance. Thank you. Okay, Sparkle Lindsay, um, what inspired you to want to educate people on your situation? Well, I would say um, one of the biggest pieces that keep me going now is the fact that I get to walk alongside people in their journey. I get to watch them transform into amazingness. <laughs> and I got to watch myself do this and I'm still watching myself do it daily and I'm doing it hand in hand with other people. And so when you get to start walk, like walking their journey with them and then you also see some things that they're going through that also can help you in your own life, you're forced to be reckoned with because you're working together. And so for me, there's like all these things that I found in, in a lot of the clients that I have that they start to have these aha moments and it makes my heart smile. And I knew then, I knew um, that when I start seeing those types of things happen in others, 
it just makes me bloom and blossom that much more. And I know that my calling was from God himself to walk with people, hold space for people. And I know I can't keep it, but I can hold it so they can get their bearings and they can keep walking with me. So my inspiration comes from people finding their light and people becoming the light that they never thought they could be before. You know, shedding their, their skin, finding out that they're getting healthy again, you know, going to the dentist and getting your teeth looked at. These are all little things that just make us a, a well-oiled machine. And so when you're actually walking with people in their life and in their journey, it is so fulfilling that you can't help but move forward yourself. So that is the inspiration I have. And I look forward to moving forward in this journey that I have started with Sparkle LLC and helping people find their light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Sparkle. And thank you, Jolisa, for asking those questions that came in from the audience. We truly appreciate you. Now at this time, I, I do have a few words I want to share. First and foremost, thank you all for being here today. For those of you who spoke on, on the panel and also too, to our sponsors, we truly appreciate you. And now each of you that spoke today, you are truly someone else's hope. I can't tell you how many individuals out there are, are, are going through this right now and are recovering and that don't even know that they can recover, right? So that's what it's, it's so important that we continue to raise awareness and educate others that it is possible to, to recover. Now, for those of you who don't know, I actually lost a friend of mine after high school many years ago, many, many years ago. And she, her death was caused by fentanyl. It was, uh, the, the drugs were laced with fentanyl. And that individual who, who mixed those drugs is, was faced with a murder charge. And so I, I lost a good friend of mine many years ago. And so if you're listening to this message today, again, there is hope. There is hope at the end of the tunnel. Do not give up. Do not give up. Do not give up. If you've lost a loved one to drugs, do not give up. If you are in that situation right now, do not give up. You can recover. You can recover. Keep your head up no matter what and keep God first in your life. Higher power, whomever you believe in, keep them first and hold on, hold on to faith. Have that confidence in the things that you cannot see. Hold on to faith. I truly believe each and every one of you can overcome whatever you may be battling right now. And remember, give your battles to him. Give your battles to God. Your battles are not for you to handle alone. He does not want you to face your battles alone. God is the creator of all things. We are the children of God. And so remember, you might be stuck in a situation or circumstance right now, but you're not alone. You're not alone. One of my favorite verses is Joshua 1.9. It states, haven't I commanded you to be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for your Lord, your God is with you wherever you go. Therefore, remember, you're not alone. And so again, I want to say thank you all for being here today. Thank you all for tuning in and listening in to these amazing speakers from all over the world. And again, remember, there is hope. And at this time, I'd love to close out this event with Mr. Ben Swicegood with a prayer. He's going to close this event out with a prayer. Everyone close your eyes and bow your head, please. Thank you. Yes, Father, Lord, we just come to you, God, and we're just thankful, 
Lord, we're thankful for this event. Lord, we're thankful for just a breath of life. We're thankful for the survivors that are on this panel and across this world, people that have gone through tragedies and addiction, people that have overcome and broke through, people that maybe were struggling or that had some some ailments or something that, that was holding them back. Lord, we're thankful for the ones that have seen the light, that have broke free. God, we give you the glory for this evening. We give you the glory for this panel. We give you the, the honor and glory just for what you do in our life, just for loving us, for loving sinners like us, people that some gave up on, people that grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, people that were nobody, that felt like losers, that felt all alone. But God, you saw us. You saw us right where we were, whether it was in the street, in jail, in a drug house, in a bad relationship. God, you saw us. And we thank you for picking us up out of that miry clay, for setting our feet upon a rock and for establishing our goings. God, we give you the honor and the praise. Lord, I thank you for for Gigi, Lord, and for this great event that she has put on and for all those that came together and gave us such a great event. God, we just give you the glory and the honor, and we're just so thankful and blessed, and we hope that everyone that attended was blessed by this great event and that we've made a difference and impacted the world for you and your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Amen. God bless you and be safe.